I killed the last honorable man 15 years ago since then. You've seen his porch from downstairs? Mm-hmm. Is your mouth all glued up with Connie juice? I asked you a question. I said I seen it, sir. <laughs> oh, you got a murderous rage in you, and I like it. Oh, it's life boiling up inside of you. It's good. Welcome to the Three Men in a Retrospective podcast. Look at the film collaborations between Martin Scorsese and Leonardo DiCaprio. Show me all the blue. Show me all the blueprint. Join Garrett. You don't say that name. Matt. I haven't slept for fucking weeks. And they're returning Michael Ganeri. A rather high-strung chap. As they look at the cinematic feats of the combined talents from the famed director and big star. We're taking home cold hard cash via commission, motherfucker. All coming up only on Percolated Media. This is bad for everybody. What's next, dead politicians? The Aviator, released December 14, 2004. Budget, $110 million. Box office, $213 million. $213 million. $213 million. $213 million. All right, guys, here we are. We're going to get into it. The Aviator, the last time we, we, we met, you, uh, Garrett, you were talking about how after uh, Gangs of New York, you thought that that would be a, kind of a one and done for Scorsese and DiCaprio, that that would be a, a nice attempt for Scorsese to, to bring on a big star in one of his movies and probably never work with him again. And yet, a mere two years later, Back in theaters with a big, another another giant kind of historical epic of a, of a very different sort of stripe. I guess before should we get into to the uh, the the background of this one, the production, the the, the many attempts to make a a film about the life of Howard Hughes leading up to 2004. Uh, yeah, but finish your thought before you get into that. Well, my thought mostly is that you know this is a, this is a film where um, this is a star vehicle as much as it is like a. Uh, you know, in a, in a tour film. I mean, this is a movie that's about one guy. You know, this is a movie that's called The Aviator. It's about an aviator. And one guy has to play The Aviator. And he's in every scene of the movie, or pretty much every scene of the movie. And uh, and and it's, you know, kind of gift-wrapped and, and, and handed to DiCaprio. And so if any movie was a, was a, a, a real uh, collaboration, you would think that this would, this would be the one between... Scorsese and DiCaprio, and and we'll 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 see where the their collaboration goes from here. But um, I think it's it's interesting that this was sort of their very first, uh, not the first, but you know the the follow up to Gangs of New York is doing this big, you know, kind of prestigious, you know, biopic all about one guy and 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 with this huge star playing him. Yeah, and we've covered these before. Ironically, the only times we've covered them is with Mike. We did Ali, the Michael yes. Mann. Muhammad Ali pick with Will Smith. That, is that the only one we've done, Matt? I think it oh, is. If any come to mind, I'll okay. be sure to mention that. But I, well, I think that's the, a big one. There's Public Enemies, if you consider that. But that's, its oh, own, that's yeah. a little bit different. But Yeah, that, that, wasn't, but that yeah. wasn't focused on one person. And as far as biopics go, it's weird. When I heard that this was coming out, I was curious. Because, again, DiCaprio, Gangs in New York, 
We, we mentioned last week, good movie. I didn't think it was a great movie. Mike seems to think so. I thought it was pretty good. I thought it was very watchable. And I was curious that, I know, Mike, you're going to get into the history of this, but I was curious that this would be their next project. We're going to make DiCaprio, it's almost like, and I hate using this term, but Oscar bait. Oh, like totally, we're gonna, yeah. We're going to put him front and center, and we're going to see if maybe we can get him some a little bit of Oscar buzz going with Scorsese at the helm. And that, that was my thought going in. I know there was so much more that went into this, and there were so many other people attached, but it was a curiosity project more than anything when I heard that this was coming out. I was 12. I was, you know, I was seeing various things at this time. This one was just maybe a little bit more uh, arcane to my interests or, you know, whatever, just at the time. But I definitely knew what it was. I definitely knew that there was this big movie about Howard Hughes who I just kind of, yeah. you know, I've always been a history buff. So I just sort of, I knew that there was this guy who was this kind of eccentric rich guy who fucking wore Kleenex boxes on his feet or whatever, you know, what you, you think of like all the parodies and everything like that. And that there was this movie about this guy. And I remember then I didn't watch, I guess at that time it would have been Ebert and Roper. I didn't watch that regularly, but I would on occasion see it, and I remember them reviewing this one and, and talking about how this was not a film that was about, like, the Howard Hughes that people know, like, the old guy with the big beard holed up in a in a penthouse in Las Vegas or whatever. This was a younger and more active kind of Howard Hughes and stuff. So I, I knew that this was going on. I certainly didn't see it at the time, though. It's funny you say that. I was 11 years old. This was my Christmas present to go see this in a theater. Oh, you poor bastard. Oh, I would have killed my parents. <laughs> I didn't do it in a theater at 11. Are you out of your fucking mind? <laughs> Look, here's the dirty here's the secret. I waited a long time to watch this. This was one of the last Scorsese movies I watched to round out his omnibus of films. First reason I avoided it was... To be honest, the subject matter did not particularly interest me based on the title. I have no experience in aviation. I'm not one for planes to begin with. And more importantly, when I saw this, I was not 100% on the DiCaprio support side. I thought he was fine, but on the surface, with all the context, this did strike me in the same way that Michael Mann's Ali was a Will Smith, Oscar bait type of performance. And the second reason, and this is more... Nowadays, not something I pay much attention to. But a movie that doesn't interest me is hard enough, but one that's close to three hours, that can be a laborious experience for me. So why would I commit to something outside of my own obsession to, much like Garrett, round out every director's career? Sometimes that pans out very well, other times not so much, depending on who it is. So I probably saw this at the time when I watched all Scorsese stuff. It was probably when Wolf of Wall Street was coming out. Maybe a little mm-hmm. bit prior, possibly Hugo. So this was one of the last bases that I rounded. And I did watch it the first time. And this is probably only my third time watching it for this show. Not to preview my thoughts too much, but let's be honest. Who has three hours and regularly says, I want to watch The Aviator Me. Uh, on a yearly basis? <laughs> yeah, you, you said it right, Joe. Uh, other than one of the people on the show. <laughs> I've never seen this movie on syndication whatsoever. Well, that's their loss, because I assure you, this is something I've seen, I don't know, maybe like eight times or something like that. A lot, a pretty large amount of times for a movie that runs 170 minutes. I first saw this in high school, and I was, I sort of put it on, and a DVD, it was a DVD that someone in my family owned, and I, I put it on, and it was just sort of immediately kind of sucked into it, and I think I rewatched it again, maybe like a couple of weeks later, just because I was like, what was going on with that? Goddamn, Ganeri, that's almost a full day. <laughs> okay, I'm sorry. 
<laughs> you said you saw it almost eight times. It's three okay. hours long. Okay. Uh, yeah, that's true. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I guess. <laughs> well, you know what? Here's the thing, though. Think about think about how many times Howard Hughes saw some of those movies in his private screening room. That was more oh. than a day. Much like Howard Hughes, Mike probably wasn't wearing any clothing. Let's check Canary's fingernails. <laughs> I'm literally looking right now at a brown leather jacket that I own that I bought because it looks like the jacket that DiCaprio is wearing Man. in the early scenes of this movie. Man, all right. <laughs> Go ahead. All right, so the thing about Howard Hughes is that people have been trying to make a movie about his life for decades, going back, honestly, to Citizen Kane, because Citizen Kane is not based on Howard Hughes, but when Orson Welles and, and Mank himself came up with the idea of doing a movie about a rich a rich tycoon's life, they were like, well, who should it be based on? And they at one point considered Howard Hughes, but they thought... No, he, he lives too amazing of a life. No one would believe it if it was in a movie. And especially after he died and all these secrets came out about him and about his battle with obsessive-compulsive disorder and all of his eccentricities. There were all these attempts to make a movie of his life. Warren Beatty was going to do it. He spent about 40 years doing it before he finally yeah. came out with a movie that no one saw. Um, yeah, 10 years after this one. <laughs> yeah, right. With him playing, Deca- or like, like Howard Hughes at like the same age as DiCaprio is. It's really, I know. <laughs> and and uh, at one point, Steven Spielberg was. They were going after him to direct one. John Malkovich and Edward Norton and the Hughes brothers and like all these different stars and directors were all with their different projects, getting the rights to different biographies and memoirs and trying to get them to do that. At one point, and this is I have this script saved on my computer. And I just think it's I need to read it at some point because it sounds crazy. There was one that was going to be. Brian De Palma directing Nicolas Cage as oh, Howard. Fuck. But here's the thing: it was going to be Nicolas Cage in a dual role as both Howard Hughes and as Clifford Irving, the guy who wrote a fake Howard Hughes autobiography and tried to sell it. That sounds amazing. It does, doesn't it? Yes. Uh, I do wish we had gotten that also. But so this actual project uh, originated not with Scorsese, but with a previous. Uh, subject of ours, Michael Mann, mm-hmm. which is so interesting because this style of this movie is so unlike anything that Michael Mann mm-hmm. has ever done. And yet, this was the script and everything that was that, like he commissioned by John Logan, and like it, it's so. And then yet, I can see Michael Mann doing a good film about Howard Hughes' life, but it would just be totally different in this one, its style and tone. And there was some hubbub, and Michael Mann got sued by the guy who wrote the book that this was based on. There was some commotion, and eventually Michael Mann drops out, but Leonardo DiCaprio was already attached at this time. And DiCaprio says, hey, let's go to Scorsese. See, I heard that he dropped out because he had done Ali, and he didn't want to tackle another biopic subject. But you're saying he was pretty much forced out. I don't know if he was forced out. It might have just been a situation where he was. it was a combination of what you said and... If he's being sued by this guy, he's like, you know what, let's just fuck. I don't need to. Yeah. And plus, he stays His on name's his, on this. Like he's, yeah, right. Yeah, he's on this as a producer. Right. So. Yeah, it's, 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 it's so interesting because the approach Scorsese takes to this is not even necessarily that I think the approach that people would expect. I guess Scorsese is, is more uh, versatile than people necessarily give him credit for. I have this theory that a lot of directors, when they get to a certain point of influence and and they've been in their career for long enough they want to do citizen kane they want to make their version of citizen mm-hmm. kane i don't mean like a movie that's that good i mean a movie that is literally like as close to them remaking citizen kane as they can and for skate Sc- scorsese this is it some other examples you see so i'm not just doing a one-off is like 
I think Fincher with Mank is an example of that. Oh, yeah. Uh, I think that Oliver Stone's Nixon, if you watch that, is almost structurally so similar to Citizen Kane. But anyways, so Scorsese comes on to this film, and you have this screenplay by John Logan, who is a playwright in addition to a, a pretty high-level sort of in-demand screenwriter. He's written some very big films over the years of, of sort of varying quality, but some of them are very good. And... I gotta jump in here because John Logan is also a reason I did not want to watch this movie because I am notorious in the same way that Garrett maybe up until this recording had a hatred of this movie. I have never been able to finish Gladiator. I, I, uh, think, okay. I think that movie is hot garbage, and he followed that up with the Time Machine and Star Trek Nemesis, <laughs> both of which are Christ. fucking abysmal. So he goes the Martin Scorsese says, "You're my guy." He's the sole writer on this, and, I mean, The Last Samurai is okay. That's probably the best thing he had done up to this point, but I was very trepidatious when I saw his name on the writing, cause, mostly because of my dislike of Gladiator. I, that might be the problem. I would say that, that I know Crash Gets Maligned is the worst Best Picture winner, but Gladiator's right up there, if you ask me. Well, I think that I'm not a big fan of Gladiator, so I'm not going to be going to bat for that, but I think that if you look at Logan's filmography, it's a lot of as the case is with a lot of Hollywood screenwriters, it's a lot of co-writing. You know what I mean? So yeah, like yeah. John it goes through a lot of hands. Yeah. And it's like, you know, how much of when something is good can you attribute to him? How much when something's bad can you attribute to him? It's sort of a little up in the air. He wrote a play called Never the Sinner, which is a really good play about the Leopold Loeb murders that I saw in Chicago starring uh, the guy who's in The Dark Knight who goes, things are worse than ever! And he fucking killed it in, in the play, not in The Dark Knight. <laughs> but anyway, and, and John Logan had also written that movie, RKO 281, the, the HBO Citizen Kane making of movie with Lee F. Schreiber. Does everyone ever, ever, ever see that? Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. And I think that that's probably a little more in the direction that they were. And, of, of course, I'm sure Gladiator being a huge hit has probably tilted them in that direction as well. And so this is around the time and this so often happens when you have these sort of hot sometimes it's a book sometimes it's a, a person's life or a historical era and you'll have competing projects that are both trying to be the one that gets made first because we saw what happens when you had two Steve Jobs movies one of them sucks and makes more money than the one that's good you can't you <laughs> yeah. got you got to be the one version you know what i mean because you don't want to be the Johnny come lately and so like at the same time that Miramax and this is a Miramax film and Scorsese are doing this there's a competing Hughes project uh, that's kind of remains very mysterious in some ways that was going to be done by Christopher Nolan and this would have been right after Insom- Insomnia and he had Jim Carrey lined which up is a Hughes. great casting at that time yeah I had I, 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 I think Jim Carrey could have really um, sunk his teeth into that it's so weird when you look at that because what's he end up doing after this thing gets springboarded and he's like okay Scorsese's coming out with one I'm not going to be as you said Mike the Johnny come lately to have one of these come out and be the least of the two Give me Batman. He takes Batman Begins. And if you look at that movie, and especially if you look at Dark Knight Rises, in the beginning of that film, there's a lot of Howard Hughes-type stuff going on in that. I don't think his fascination with Howard Hughes ever really went away. Christopher Nolan, I think he interjects a lot of his stuff with pieces of what could have been that film. Nolan's Oppenheimer movie is probably going to be very close to what he would have done with that Howard Hughes movie. So... This is a big production. I mean, this is probably, I would need to check the budget on Games New York again, but this is probably about the same. What was the Aviator made for? $110 million. I have Gangs in New York Cup. That was 100 so 10% increase. So there you yeah. go. So this is a, another huge production, and it looks it. Before we get into the plot, I think this is a, a 
fantastic-looking film, and I think that Robert Richardson, Scorsese has worked with some great cinematographers over the years, and Richardson is one of the absolute best. They did Casino together, they did Bringing Out the Dead together, they will they'll go on to do a few more movies in the future, but Richardson's also done a lot of Tarantino's movies in the past 20 years, the two Kill Bill movies, and Glorious Bastards. He did those uh, Oliver Stone movies in the early 90s, JFK and, and National Killers. War Killers. Yeah, and just, I think those are, I think these are some of the best just most kind of stunning-looking films of their era. And he's got that great overlit with the overhead lighting that's really kind of just jacked up. And what he does with the colors is always really interesting. And the kind of famous, I think, Robert Richardson sort of look with the kind of halo of light, he actually doesn't do so much here. What they do with the visuals here is so interesting in that there's that first... It's not quite the first half. It's more like the first third of the movie where... The colors are done so that it is modeled after the uh, what's off, usually called two strip technicolor. It's actually three strip technicolor films of the early 30s when the earlier parts of the film are set. When really the early technicolor could only render two colors. It was red and blue, but it was more like a kind of like a sort of like a slightly orange red and then like sort of a blue green kind of an aqua type color. There's not a lot of classics that are done in that style. You know, this is not Scarface, or, or, or which is a great film that, that, that Howard Hawks used. Scarface, not like that. So it, it's it's a, it's such an interesting kind of choice, and I think that this film takes that, and it's not just a, a nod to film buffs, but I also think it gives this whole movie, and it, starting from the first moments, it, it gives this kind of air of unreality and a sort of dreamlike kind of fantastical quality to. Uh, the, the life that Howard Hughes is living, because he did live a fantastic life. He lived an unreal life. It was like something from the movies. And I think that that's what Scorsese is, is really going after here. So let's let's get right into it. So we open with... Oh, Before you do, I yes. got to say, now when we were doing M. Night Shyamalan last year, Matt had said that there was one movie in that oeuvre that he had promised himself he would never watch again. And that was at the beginning of that retrospective. And we, we went through, six, I think, about four or five movies. And at that point, he was like, okay... Next week, Lady in the Water, that's it. I'm looking at that movie, and it's staring me in the face, and I know I'm going to have to watch it, and I'm dreading every minute of it. That's the way I was feeling about this movie. Because the first time I watched this movie, I had a distinguished, just angry reaction to it. And I was looking at this, and I'm like, okay, well, it's only going to be two movies in. This is the very early stages of building another website that me and Matt are doing here. Should we even do this retrospective if I have to watch this movie and make people hate me even more? But here's the thing. I hadn't seen it in a long time, as I mentioned last week, and I looked at it, and I'm like, okay, I'm going to put this in. I'm going to go in with a very, very open mind. Open my notebook, just sat there and took notes, and we'll see how I come out of it. But yeah, I was dreading this viewing for this retrospective writing. God, that's such a weird reaction to me, as you can probably tell from me really going, yeah, yeah. going hard in the pen. So, but context notwithstanding, I can't believe he compared the aviator to Lady in the Water. <laughs> <laughs> the only time you'll hear that in any wavelength whatsoever. Well, there were some scrunts in this movie and a couple snarfs, right? <laughs> Well, this this movie's littered with so many famous actors and small roles. I was looking for Paul Giamatti the entire time. So, I, what I'm curious at now, if you can remember, now it's been you know 18 years or whatever, but I, now I'm curious at like at what point the movie lost you or, or whatever. Because uh, I'll give you the exact scene. Oh, it's coming. It's, all I'll right. give you the exact Got a time stamp like Howard Hughes. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. The very millisecond. Uh huh. So we open on a very interestingly shot, I think, scene of the young Howard Hughes as a child being uh, bathed by his mother 
who is warning him about the dangers of germs and how there's a typhus plague in Houston, kind of instilling sort of that fear of dirtiness and uncleanliness and contamination that will recur throughout his life in a way that can be very kind of biopic and that kind of classic biopic thing of you open with the hero's mother or father telling the thing that will be the defining wrong kid died type character trait for the rest of the film. Here's my problem with this. Living in Nevada, I've read a lot about Howard Hughes because he shacked himself up in the desert ends and that's where he famously went way over the edge. So I have read a lot on him and I know a lot of things. He was a shrewd businessman, but he was also a real piece of shit as a human being, as a lot of people were back then. You know, these opening stages of this movie start something, a chain reaction that I already turn against. And that is they are trying to give a reason. They are trying to make us sympathetic to this character. And they're putting DiCaprio in this role to make us like him. But they don't do anything with him to make us not like him. And they go really far in trying to make us sympathize with whatever it is he has going on. And we don't even hear about any of this. We don't hear about any of the Ali Frazier stuff when he refused to carry that fight because he didn't want that quote-unquote crowd in. They're trying right away to make us sympathize, and right away I'm already starting to turn against it. I think it's fair enough. I mean, I my take on sort of films that deal with real figures of historical note you know, it's a, it can be a complicated thing because, like, my take is that, like, you, you can deviate from reality or you can you emphasize certain characteristics or paint things in different lights than they maybe were in, in reality. I think that that's covered by sort of artistic license. I think for me, when I watch this film, what I think is the dominant trait that the film has or the dominant attitude that the film had towards Howard Hughes, and this might be worse than sympathy or better, I don't know, it sort of depends on where you stand from, is not so much sympathy, although I think there is sympathy for his, specifically for his struggles with mental illness, which of course it's not that that excuses any any of his terrible behavior, I mean we'll, we can get into that. It's more like kind of in awe at what he was able to do, in the same way that a great athlete or a great musician might be a piece of shit in their personal life and in reality, but that doesn't change the talent. It doesn't excuse the talent, but it just doesn't change the talent. And I think that's sort of what is going on here in the same way that Charles Kane in, in Citizen Kane lived a massive life because he had energy and a sense of theatricality. I think that's kind of what Scorsese is getting at here and, and sort of Hughes' love in the film of aviation and of planes, I think is a sort of artistic reflection of Scorsese's love of the movies. I think that's what draws him in is that Hughes was making this film Hell's Angels, which is kind of what the first whole act of the movie is. Hughes was making the film not really because he loved movies, but because he loved playing so much. And then what interests Scorsese is the movies of it. And so these two interests, they kind of coalesce into one kind of thing. And so I don't think Scorsese has an actual passion for airplanes, but what happens here is that gets substituted for Scorsese's love of film. And, and it becomes a kind of vicarious look into into the world of this guy who is so strange and so eccentric and so, I mean, just kind of inherently unrelatable due to his position in life with his absolute immense wealth and eccentricity. Oh, boy. This is already starting off to be quite a discussion. I don't think the movie is asking you to sympathize with him. I lean more of a place of understanding than you should feel sorry for this guy. 
And let me put my general arcing thought about biopics on the table right now. We'll drop it out of the sky like a plane. I don't go to biopics looking for authenticity (laughs) because Lord knows hardly any of them are 100% true to life. So I think in a movie like this where everything is so... From the cinematography to the costuming, it is very evocative of a specific time period. It makes the drama and the way the OCD, among other things, is depicted, feel very heightened. And I think that actually works to the movie's strength and that everything is kind of exaggerated because this was a exuberant time for, I would say, the wealthy because part of this movie does take place during the Great Depression. But this was sort of one of the golden ages of Hollywood and having everything be so garish and lively, for lack of a better word, I think is what makes sort of the inner machinations and the struggles work for me. I think he he strikes a good balance. If this was played relatively straight, but shot flatly, I think it would come across far more as Oscar bait. It would be more like a beautiful mind. Yes. Which it's acted well, but it's kind of insidiously told the way it's depicted. I don't have that association here. And speaking of the Oscars, it's kind of bad that this didn't win Best Picture because it's ultimately a tribute to Hollywood, which is what they love, tributes to itself. That's yeah. exactly the only reason I can think of that Kate Blanchett won. Well, the other reason is that but, she's great in the movie, so I don't know what no, you're talking about. No, she's not. Oh, come she's on. Not, we'll get there. Now she hasn't even showed up on screen. I know. I, I know. Even, we literally haven't even gotten to Leonardo DiCaprio. We're still on the first scene. I know. Yeah, and I think the only reason he didn't win is because Jamie Foxx was just that much better. See, um, I still haven't well, seen. We'll I still there. haven't seen Ray. But anyways, Jamie Foxx should have won for Collateral. So we move on. Okay, 1927. Howard Hughes, he's in Hollywood. He's making Hell's Angels. He's directing it himself. He's financing it himself. He's come out from Texas. He's the heir to a oil, uh, not an oil, a drill bit fortune. Yeah, that's the other thing about this movie. So we come out of that scene that you mentioned, Mike, and now we're going into the making of this movie, which, from what I understand, was a James Cameron project of its day where it went way over budget and they weren't sure if it was going to get made. Okay, that's fine, but how did he get this money to do this? How did he get to where he is? How did we get anywhere here? This movie just moves from one thing to another. We're going to go from here to him going into aviation. It doesn't have... And and Mike, you might speak to this better than I do because you studied Stoker Scorsese's work way more than I did. Is he doing this on purpose? Is he really making us this scatterbrained while we go from this to a scene of him making an airplane? Or is he just trying to include his obsession with old Hollywood into this? Because it just doesn't make any sense how we can go from that scene to this scene. Well, what I love about this opening going from the such an old-fashioned kind of, it's so theatrical the way it shot that opening with the mother and the way the lighting works. And then going from that right into somebody using the clapper board on the set of Hell's Angels and things moving with that through ball pacing, John C. Riley showing up and him bantering with DiCaprio. And there's this shot where DiCaprio turns around and it's this classic kind of hero shot. I like that he goes from this very Oedipal kind of Freudian sort of opening that's done with that kind of tone right into this 30s style screwball banter. And from this point on, from the point that DiCaprio comes on, to the end of the movie, Howard Hughes is pretty much fully formed as a character in the sense that he changes very little over the course of the movie. Elements of his personality deteriorate, but he doesn't particularly learn anything or really take on new traits. All the traits that he has are present in the first kind of chunk of the movie with the Hells Angels thing. That's what I think is so so neat about the way that that's done is that 
it's this little mini movie. I mean, honestly, you couldn't have ended the film, but there could have been a short film that was like 25 minutes long of just the beginning with Hughes making Hell's Angels ending with the premiere of it and the, the sort of grand triumph of that. And it would have been, it would have told a whole story about who this guy was and how he operated and the world that he operated in. And Scorsese's love of old Hollywood is, I think, what draws him to this story. I don't think he is interested in aviation or airlines or, or anything like that. But I think that the thing about Hughes in this era is that, and the reason why this film is set in his younger years rather than his later years, is that as somebody who's coming out to Hollywood just when it's getting started and using his money to introduce himself to that world, he, in a way, symbolized the kind of Western sort of American notion of here we are. It's the end of the world, not the end of the world, it's the edge of the world, and we can make our own future from here. And that's kind of what the premise of the movie is, is like, how do you make the future? How do you things get created, whether it's movies or planes or wars even? And seeing that, and from the beginning, it seems kind of optimistic, and it's got that kind of fun tone to it with all this Hollywood antics and everything like that, and these colorful sort of characters and this literally colorful cinematography. And as it goes on, you see more of the darkness kind of grow until you get to that final scene, and the darkness literally envelops Hughes, which is right back to where he started. So all of his demons and everything were there from the beginning, and yet we see sort of, quote-unquote, you know, the good parts, and, and of course the film is presenting in a very kind of a sunnier version of himself than, than a lot of people were <laughs> introduced to. So this movie's framed around his demons, is that what you're saying? Yeah, because I think it's what the movie's basically about, is how this guy who was, was a great engineer and inventor, and he was extremely physically brave to do these flights that he did, and he was bold, and he had a lot of bravado, and he didn't let sort of adversity really stop him from doing what he believed he could do, and he was very arrogant because of that. And he was very vain because of that. And his perfectionism in his search for kind of aviation perfection and breaking all the records and building the best planes and everything like that was part and parcel of his own mental obsessions that eventually led to his complete breakdown from humanity. This idea that he couldn't let anyone in the world tell him no. He couldn't let anything in the world stop him. The only thing that could stop him was himself because he was so lost in his own neuroses and mental illness. And that's what ultimately stopped him. He was his own worst enemy and his own hero in the sense of his own, he had his own strengths. But his demons are what brought him down. And they were there the whole time. But because he was so capable of doing so many things, he thought that he could overcome them on his own. And that's kind of, that, sure. that's sort of what I think the film is about. It's about how this guy had this tragic flaw, which was that he was so exceptional in the sense of he lived such an extraordinary life that he couldn't separate them from his own strengths. And so we start with Hughes making Howard Hughes and Hughes making Hell's Angel, excuse me. And John C. Riley is his Noah Dietrich, who is the guy he brings on to run his business interests. And John C. Riley, of course, coming in from Gangs of New York. And the making of Hell's Angels is a, is a real, what's the word before? Boondoggle. Uh, yeah, that was the word. With the budget, very James Cameron-y, uh, past schedule, they're firing people. They've got this whole fleet of planes, and they have to wait for the right weather to get the way that it looks for Hughes to have it to be the way it wants. He wants the clouds to look like big breasts full of milk. There's a whole thing, and they think they finally have made the film, uh, and they, they're having a big rap party, and everyone's celebrating. Like, wow, you know, it cost millions of dollars in the 20s, so that's a lot of money, and we're 
all ready to, to be done with it. And then he says, no, we're going to reshoot it all because of now sound has come in. And so we have to make it a sound film, have it be modern. This, by the way, is the second Scorsese film to feature a clip from the jazz singer along with uh, oh, no Goodfellas. Yeah. This is one of those rare cases where there's a biopic that is, this thing's almost three hours. <laughs> three fucking hours. And I don't learn a thing about him, honestly, that I didn't know before. The, the scene that you're explaining, Mike, it's funny to look at because I like seeing John C. Riley. You know, I like seeing him interact with people. And the DiCaprio interactions are good. We'll get into what we think, feel about DiCaprio's performance here in a bit. But I just don't learn anything. And I think that's another big issue I have with this is what are we supposed to learn here? What are we supposed to take away from this? How are we supposed to know where this guy's coming from besides the Oedipal complex that you mentioned earlier and all the stuff that that implies. Is that really the only thing we are really supposed to take away from this? Because we're seeing little hints of the behavior that we're going to see later. But the fact that I don't learn much about him in this whole thing and it starts here is a big reason why I just don't like this film. Well, I think that, you know, I think that it's sort of like what I was, was talking about in the sense of how, how little he, he really changes, just elements of him kind of grow or diminish. I like how little they, they try and explain who he is. I like that he is basically who he is. I mean, they, there's the opening scene. And part of me wonders if they should have just cut the opening scene, but then I think that it pays off. Yeah. Extre- well, I think it pays off extremely well in the, so I, I don't think you could do it. But I, I thought I thought about that since the first time I saw the movie. I was like, oh, that's kind of, that's a little on the nose. But then I saw the last scene. I was like, well, you know. And I like how kind of, in some ways, simple his character is. And I think maybe this is the, the thing that cost him the Oscar, maybe. Although they've certainly given awards for performances that are more simplistic than that but like i said i think he, you understand who he is and where he's coming from really within the first five minutes of his performance and he is essentially the same throughout that and i think that's how a lot of people are especially i think a lot of extremely rich people people who are born rich and, and stay rich stress their lives i think a lot of them are like that where they don't change because they essentially live their entire lives in a state of kind of extended childhood which is i think what's another thing that's going on here and i think that's also why i know some people at the time and since have said that dicaprio was too young to play the character he looked too young and that it, it doesn't work because of that i think it works in the sense that i that's what i think is kind of going on with hughes in this film is that he's sort of a perpetual child and so even though 20 years pass in the movie and he gets a mustache to cover some scars, other than that, he doesn't physically change and no one else does in the film. It's kind of because of that, because he's still the same person. He's still the same child that he was at the beginning of the movie that he is in the end. But we'll get we'll get to that that actual scene there. So they reshoot the entire picture, Hell's Angels. They reshoot it with sound. And this is where we first start to get some hints of the OCD that will start to eventually overwhelm Hughes' entire life with some of his, I think it's, he, he, he sees a sort of a speck of dust when he's being confronted by uh, John C. Riley about by Noah, about the finances. And we see him here willing to risk his entire sort of financial livelihood on what he thinks is the right kind of venture for him, which is this movie. He, he mortgages father's tool company that he inherited in order to pay for Hell's Angels, the most expensive film at that time ever made. And they eventually do it, and they finish the film. And you have these scenes of Hughes in his planes filming Hell's Angels from these World War One-era biplanes that they have modified to be monoplanes. And uh, there's the, the shots of DiCaprio as Hughes in the plane with holding a camera himself, operating it as they're flying around. And I, I really like the, the way that the – and I this is one of those areas where I think technical limitations end up kind of helping the film – in that I think some of the flying scenes are very realistic looking. 
I think others are not realistic looking at all. And I think that that's a, hmm. a, a benefit to the film because it actually gives those scenes a real fantastical kind of quality to it. Because that so much of the film is about Hughes kind of living out his fantasies. And I think that the way that those scenes kind of look almost cartoonish in a way plays into that in a way that I think the Michael Band version of the film would feel very realistic, would feel very like, yeah, I mean, he filmed in an actual plane for one scene of Ali just because he thought that plane scenes in movies always look fake. And so he took a whole camera crew up into a plane. And I think that shows you the difference between how different directors can approach different, the same, the same subject in wildly different ways. Because I, I think that there's this almost cartoonish quality to the, to the aviation scenes in, in many places in the film. Well, there's one place where I don't, I don't think it's cartoonish at all. And I think it's to the benefit of the film. But we'll get to that. Yeah, I'll, I'll say that for the most part, the special effects, I think, work. Where I will differ with you on is the cinematography. I do not like the cinematography of this movie. I do not like the way it's lit at all. And, and I understand what Scorsese's going for here. He's go, having us go for the schizophrenic nature of what's going on in his head. But I don't like movies like that. I don't like movies that try to get us into people's heads like that. And when they start doing things like when DiCaprio's eating peas and you look down, they're, they're actually blue instead of green. I think that stuff's stupid. I can't get into that at all. Wild to me. That was, I see, I didn't know about the way that, like, I didn't know beforehand about how the cinematography of this film was the first time I saw it. And that was sort of the moment that made me go, wait a second here. Because, yeah, when you see the peas and they're, like, basically blue, I was like, whoa, what's going on here? And I had, you know, sort of subconsciously picked up on, or not subconsciously, you know, it's like, it's in the ether, but like that was the moment where I go, wait a second, wait a second, what's going on here? And I think that, and this changes later, and I think that also reflects some of the atmosphere that the film is building in that these early sections, the blue doesn't even look blue, and the red doesn't even look red. And then later on in the film, when he's stopped with this two-color, three-strip, technicolor kind of look to it, and he's gone to a more full kind of color palette, the red becomes so important as a color in the way that it, it reflects Hughes's growing madness, the way that it, the fire that he burnt, well, I mean, I'm kind of all over the place here, but the way that the fire that he burns his clothes in is just like red and it kind of dominates the screen or when he's in the screening room and he's all bathed in this red light and it's, it's a true kind of crimson red. And I think that that shows like the changing, the colors of his mind changing, the colors of the world around him changing as he sort of descends further and further into, into madness. See, audience, <laughs> I spent the last three minutes utterly silent because they're talking on this podcast with someone who was fucking colorblind and could not contribute in <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> I forgot that. About, I knew that, but I had forgotten about that. Have either of you guys seen Hell's Angels, the actual film? No. I saw it last year, and it's not very good. <laughs> it's no, kind of not really. Yeah. It's, it's, it's really scattershot, to be perfectly yeah. honest. It's one of those things where the playing sequences are incredible, and you can tell that Howard Hughes loved making those, and then the dialogue scenes are all kind of bad, and like you can tell like this is why he was not a director for the most part. This is why this is why he gave over Scarface to Howard Hawks. Scarface, by the way, the original 1932 Scarface, one of my all-time favorite films. Highly recommended. If anyone's listening to this and they're like, oh, should I check it out? Yes. Anyways, so we move on to the next stage of the, the film, and I, I started timing this movie when I was rewatching it this time, and it almost moves in increments of exactly 27 minutes. I started noticing that, is that, like, this first se section with Hughes making Hell's Angels is, like, 27 minutes long, and then, like, this next segment with him romancing Catherine Hepburn until 
next part of it goes, when, when things are still going well, is almost 27 minutes long exactly. I don't know if that was intentional or if that's just kind of one of those kind of quirks of editing, but that's sort of what goes up to it. So we meet Catherine Hepburn, played very, very well, undeniably, by Miss Kate Blanchett. When Howard lands his plane on the set of a to George Cooker film, I can't remember which one it is, but he lands it on a film set and goes and asks her out, and they decide to go uh, golfing. Of course, she's very outdoorsy. Uh, oh boy! All right. Okay. Did it, now, tell me, tell me what you yeah, he, he, he was about to bite through his fucking tongue. <laughs> I, yeah. <laughs> My Dr. Pepper can almost has teeth marks through it right now. Here's where... Smashed it like the Hulk. There's no can left. (laughs) Now, I've been on record on this podcast. I love Kate Blanchett. I love her presence on screen. I really do. And I do think she brings a different presence to this that the movie so desperately needed. My problem with her performance here is I literally feel like Scorsese told her, all right, watch this film, this film, this film, and then act like that. I don't think she brings or interprets anything in this. And she's kind of doing a whole impression instead of an interpretation. And I think the reason Hollywood gave her that Oscar is because they love being jerked off. They love when filmmakers take old actors and old actresses and they do them up in a modern age. And I don't like her in this. She puts on that voice and I'm like, that's exactly the way she was when she was in films. that's my problem with her performance yeah she was larger than life everyone who does an impression of her the reason it's so dead on is because it's it's so accurate with how her affectations were she starts off intentionally pardon the pun broad and I think that was an intentional choice because as the movie goes on you start to learn more about her versus what she you know once there's the part where she leaves on first Spencer Tracy it's a bit more toned down and I kind of like that there, there are some contrasts I'm more in line with Mike. I think she does what she's asked. But you're also right that they gave her the Oscar partially for politically motivated. It's just the fact that you're talking about jerking off during a Miramax movie made me almost spit out my coffee. But I like watching her. Uh, Catherine Hepburn, one of my favorites. And you're right. She literally watched her first 15 movies or something, and that was her prep work. And a lot of those early roles are the more out-there type of performances. I think that's why it explains why she may feel larger than life in this movie, because she, she was at the time, too. Like She was yes. the biggest star for decades. She was the mainstay for a long time. And she also, I think that another reason why, and it is it is a very, I mean, Catherine Everett is a larger-than-life person, and Blanchett plays her in a larger-than-life way. There's a way. There are ways to play a larger-than-life person and not be that way. But I think with this film, with the way that the, the, the visual style is so heightened and the way that the movie has this kind of, even though it is very long, has this kind of screwball, I mean, Garrett, you said scattershot, that kind of pattern to it. I think that that's going into how she plays the character. And also, I think that the other thing is that what this film is, is doing with her relationship with Hughes, because he, he dated a lot of famous actresses over the years. And the reason they're picking her as, like, the one to highlight, you see some of the, like, you know, Gwen Stefani has this cameo as Jean Harlow, which is a little weird, is that this woman who dates Hughes and is, like, the main focus in the film of his romantic life has to be larger than life because he is larger than life in a different way. His personality is not quite so in-your-face as hers is, which is kind of what, actually, in the film they're getting at with them getting along so well. She has to be a challenge for him to be inspired by in the same way that building the biggest planes or making the biggest movies is part of the same challenge. And there's an actor, I mean, it's it's uh, Kate Beckinsale who plays uh, Ava Gardner 
in this movie, who I think is not good in this film. I think she's not bad, but I'm like, this is not, she's, she, I think she's completely forgettable, and she, she just gets outclassed by every other actor in this film. And I think that, and that, and that's a sign of Blanchett, I think, having the right approach to, to playing her character. And I think that you don't just see that with Blanchett's portrayal of Catherine Hepburn. You also see it with Jude Law's appearance as Errol Flynn in one scene. Or even with people who are not playing famous Hollywood stars. I think Alec Baldwin, in his character, is doing a very kind... It's not over-the-top as much as Blanchett is, but it's a very kind of old Hollywood-style yeah. character yeah. actor performance. Yeah. His is my favorite performance in the movie. He's great, Honestly, yeah. I I love Alec Baldwin in this. He's fantastic. I and love Alec was... Baldwin in almost everything, and I'm glad that he worked with Scorsese. Mm-hmm. Won't be done with him yet. No. Save that for next week. But you're right that a lot of the... Everyone else, I agree with you wholeheartedly, and Kate Beckinsale. Pretty close as far as a resemblance, minimal makeup job, but not great in the acting department. I think Ian Holm is the closest this movie has to a straight man. <laughs> him and John C. Riley are kind of the anchors. Oh, yeah. I like John C. Riley in this movie a lot. Which is funny, because if you think anybody would be theatrical on this cast, it would be him. Um, sure. So I'm glad that he's kind of doing something a little bit different. Yeah, and, and Gwen Stefani, I mean, holy shit, she looks like her, but it was smart that Scorsese really didn't give her any life. Well, and this was all, she's also playing somebody who was, what, like 15 years her junior when she first appears on screen as well. Wasn't she, in reality, 19? I think she was like 18 or 19 when she did Hell's yeah. Angels. She died. She was only like 25, 26. Yeah, one of the yeah. classic... But it, it's a nice moment when they get out of the car and she's right there on his arm. I thought that was a kind of a nice photographic moment until those fucking flashbulbs went everywhere. But uh, going off of Kate Beckinsale, you know, she was having a moment at that time because she was also in Click around that time. And what? like she was in a lot of things. She appealed to a smaller demographic. I should say younger demographic. Yeah, she made the Underworld move. Which back then I used to watch on <laughs> yeah, repeat. I know. And she, this year we, we talked about Van Helsing. I see why they include her, but I'm par here. But I'm just saying with Blanchett's performance, I don't think she sets the bar that high. So Hepburn and Hughes are having their romance. Uh, They have that great scene at the Coconut Grove with appearances by uh, Errol Flynn. And it's it's a very, very crazy. Jude Law is a very crazy Errol Flynn. This This was Jude Law's year when he literally, he made, I think, like, what, seven movies in, like, four months? Mm -hmm. Like, he appeared in this film, Closer. Alfie, I Heart Huckabees, Sky Captain in the Jesus World Tomorrow, which you know, you know, you know, I was there. Oh too. yeah, and and Lemony Snicket's a series of unfortunate events. Fuck. And the thing is, <laughs> the thing is, I Heart Huckabees is the earliest I think of those movies, and that came out in October, and a series of unfortunate events came out in December of that year. So he had all the Jesus. Movies. Yeah, this was when Chris Rock took that shot at him uh-huh. <laughs> at the Oscar uh-huh. famously, and Sean Penn. <laughs> yeah. In one of the most awkward uh-huh. moments in live television. Oh, also, uh, a fucking young Adam Scott makes an appearance. Another <laughs> that, person that giving, we- yeah, another person giving a crazy like 1930s character actor performance where he's got like a pencil thin mustache. And he's also being very over the top. See, I like all the performances other than Kate Beckinsale in this. Get him for the Vincent Price biopic. <laughs> I mean, I know Bill Hader's right there, but Adam Scott has a history of that, because remember his first movie is Hellraiser 4? Yeah. I, I love Jude Law as Errol Flynn. I thought that was spot on. I didn't find it distracting, because Jude Law, he doesn't quite look like Errol Flynn, but I think he's got the mannerisms and the affectations. So this is also, we see Hughes developing the H1 racing plane, 
and also buying TWA Airlines. And this is where we get a scene of Howard Hughes breaking the world speed record with the H1, reaching 352 miles an hour, crashing in a beet field, which has uh, green plants, <laughs> or excuse me, blue plants, and weird orange beets. And this might have been a moment that drove Garrett crazy, but I don't know. And it crazy because I couldn't tell what. I thought something was wrong with my feet. I thought my OCD was kicking in. <laughs> this is one of those moments that is very, it is odd. It's so in your face that I like it. And this is when things start to go really, are going very well with Hepburn and Hughes. You have that scene of them flying his plane together where he lets her take the wheel and they share a glass of, or a bottle of milk yeah. with each other. And this is, we see like the idea that maybe he can live with his, compulsions and his 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 neuroses maybe he can't overcome them in the right context because he is willing to drink from the same bottle that she is and you see this very nice little moment where DiCaprio sort of hesitates before he does it and then he does it and and you see that maybe there is a path out for yeah him. I thought that was sweet I did kind of like that scene but just to go back to the other scene of him breaking the record or whatever like I don't see any drive in this guy being shown on screen you know I see him accomplishing these things I'm not seeing any real drive. Why is he doing this? There's no rhyme or reason as to why. I think that is the thematic crux of this movie, is that it is the... And that's why I fucking hate it. It's it's almost Greek. It's the eternal cycle of emptiness, where it's even the greatest things that he does, which some of these accomplishments were pretty remarkable for the time. Of course. None of us had that kind of money, but it leaves him with nothing except trying to do something else to top it. And eventually he reached a point where... The mountain got too high, and his own personal valleys got too low. And I think it's borderline like a Greek tragedy, you know, speaking of Oedipus. I mean, I think that's even what Scorsese compared it to. So that's kind of my biggest takeaway from the movie thematically. And it's also him flying these planes and going in them by himself is kind of the ultimate sort of escape in a way. Because he is beset by these fears that he has and these anxieties that he has when he is out in the world he hates crowds he's afraid of other people and he can sometimes hide it and sometimes he can't and he is worried about contamination and everything like that and being in the air and flying these planes by himself is the one time where he is essentially completely alone and removed from the contaminants in the world so it's 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 a complete kind of escape and the fact that that's also what ends up about halfway through the film almost killing him is, is I think, of note. So this is also where we see Hughes going to the Hepburn family compound in Connecticut for a very kind of... Have you guys seen Quiz Show? Long time ago. Uh, it's been a very yeah. long time. In Quiz Show, there's those scenes where they go to Ray Fiennes and his family, and they're like this like New England wasp family, and they're having like picnics together and like quoting Shakespeare and stuff. And they also did a, a similar thing on the second season of Succession. I, I'm always, for some reason, a sucker for any scene of awful, like, wasp families, like, getting yeah. together and just alienating anybody who's not family for 400 years. Like, I always think that that's funny. And and we see Hughes not fitting in. I, I think the scene, I do love this movie. I think the scene is kind of a weirdly... They go a little overboard with the edits here. There's so many cuts where they keep cutting to the different family members looking at them. I think enough is conveyed based on the amount of dialogue. I didn't feel Scorsese and his editor needed to do as many cuts as they did. you got to learn to let the word speak for itself sometimes. This is the scene I turned against it and never turned back. 
This is not the scene I thought he was going to say. This is it. I fucking hate this scene with a passion, and I'll tell you why. It's punctuated. My family. <laughs> no, it's punctuated by Hugh saying that all the dinner guests have no interest in money because they were born into it. This is Scorsese projecting that Hughes was not, when in reality he had inherited over $9 million in modern dollars, and by 1938, thanks to other people's managing of his father's company, by the way, he was worth over $60 million in 30s money. This guy was richer than everybody at that fucking table before he was 20 years old. And for Scorsese to portray him as this outlier who had earned his wealth and was disgusted by everyone else at that table, including a surgeon, by the way, is fucking disgraceful. I hate this scene. Fucking hate it. How do you really? Do <laughs> no, um... <laughs> I mean, it's fucking it's stupid. You're trying to make him into this guy we're supposed to care for. Anybody who knows anything about the guy knows this is fucking bullshit. Well, I think what it's doing is it's taking a germ of... Germ. <laughs> Don't listen to this, Howard. It's taking a germ of something that is a real kind of social divide, just it, just not so much in terms of wealth, because it's definitely not because he was richer than all those people, but more a sense of the worlds they're coming from, because they're coming from the, the sort of New England old money, and he inherited his money from birth, I mean, because his dad was rich, but his dad came into his wealth in a very different way. He was part of the, I mean, it was a drill bit fortune, so it comes with the modern industry, the sort of uh, western Texas kind of new money and there that's that's an old kind of divide your sort of eastern old money western new money different forms of how wealth is expressed and that's kind of an old i mean it goes back kind of reminds me of the movie giant oh, it's also wow. a movie about old old money versus new money involving you know the rising of the sort of the texas money class in in the 20s there's that germ of an idea and then this movie takes it to it, it like stacks the deck too much to like put you more on his side than makes any actual sense. But I think that it's probably true that, I don't know if this exact scene happened or anything like that, but it's probably true that there was a, a sort of cultural divide between the Hughes concept of wealth and what how life is lived versus the Hepburn style. But I think that this is more just kind of putting that kind of beginning, this, like this is the moment when the relationship starts to sour between Hepburn and Hughes in a way that eventually will be uh, much like Garrett's interest in the film, Unrecoverable. And this is around the time also that we're introduced to Alec Baldwin playing uh, Juan Tripp. This is a great name. Yeah. The head of uh, Pan Am. This was 2004, so this is before 30 Rock. This was after he got his first and only Oscar nomination for uh, The Cooler. Mm -hmm. oh, it's a good film, actually. I, I work in the casino business, so I actually do know of stuff like what goes on in that movie. But he was also, you got to remember too, this was also around the time he was on Saturday Night Live, you know? So yeah. his, he was starting to kind of turn his image a bit because when he had first come out... Oh, yeah, totally. When he had first come out, like Hollywood was intent on making him a star. And so they put him in like the shadow and all these like starring vehicles and they tried so hard to get him over as a, a huge movie star. They didn't realize that he's not really a movie star as much as he's just a character actor. I mean, when you give him the right character, he can turn it on and he can be fucking amazing. And I, 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 and I really do think like Scorsese gets the best out of him here. This is peak Baldwin for me. I think yeah. Baldwin is one of those actors that all my favorite roles of his are in supporting parts. Yeah. Because even if he played Jack Ryan, he is second fiddle to Sean Connery. Mm -hmm. But, you know, I think of obviously Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross. That's where I go to. This and the movie we'll talk about next week. Even in the Mission Impossible movies, it's kind of a thankless role, but he brings something to it. 
And all of this bit, like, the shadow, I like the shadow. I, I think I'm one of maybe ten people on this planet that have seen and or liked that movie. All of his big projects, like The Edge or what was the one he made with Kim Basinger, The Getaway. The getaway. Yeah. All those kind of movies are just... I love that movie they, as a teenager. It was so... I should not be the focal point outside of 30 Rock. Yeah. And even that's, you know, ensemble to a degree. His career has been the better for it. And it's, it was one of those things where he emerged on the scene in, like, the late 80s, and it made perfect sense that Hollywood was like, this guy should be a leading man. He was so handsome and so classically handsome. Like he's great, he was great in Beetlejuice. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Uh, married to the Mob and, and working. And he had one of those, like, Jude Law 2004-type years in 1988 where he was, like, five movies. Yeah. But, you know, and so they put him in, and I think Hunt for Red October is really the only movie that he made during his, like, leading man period where he was a leading man. And he, he is second build in that, and with that I think hits, really, because it's like you, you look at what else he was doing in that era, and it's like... We've named all the movies. Like you know, if you ever if you ever want to see Ghosts of Mississippi because you think that Rob Reiner has the ultimate take on the civil rights movement and the legacies of racism in the South, be my guest. But that movie sucks. Um, How was James Woods nominated for an Oscar for that movie? Because he didn't even realize he was in a movie. I was just like, yeah, that was just him being James Woods. Yes. And then so yeah so and and so it made perfect sense that they tried to put him in those roles, but he. I don't know if it was something wrong with him or something wrong with the roles he was getting. Maybe he was just always the second or third choice because the movie. You know what I mean? Sometimes that's the case where, like, someone is is because they're, like, the fourth choice, because they're, like, the fourth most famous, they only get the movies that are fourth tier. Well, uh, what's also, his career would have also been very different if he was cast as Batman in 89 because he was one of the front runners for that. Or if he had been, to bring it back to Scorsese, or if he had been cast as uh, Henry Hill in Goodfellas, which he auditioned for. I just think that's interesting, because it's hard to imagine anybody but Ray Liotta playing that part. And then this is around the time where, you know, he's in his 40s, put on some weight, he's gotten a little gray in the hair, he doesn't look like he used to do, but now he's, like, perfect for playing character parts, like in all the films, that, you know, the more recent films we've named, Aviator and Departed and being on 30 Rock and everything like that, and people are like, oh, yeah, this guy can actually bring a lot of uh, the right atmosphere, the right energy to it, and that's what he's bringing with this character. This It's just like a great, rich, Wall Street-type, I mean, not Wall Street, but you know what I'm saying, like rich yeah, kind of dude in a three-piece suit with like a globe in his, blue yeah. Collar. And speaking of, you know, Al Baldwin, his career also would have been different. Two big what-ifs are, he was offered to come back as Jack Ryan in Patriot Games, and he also turned down The Fugitive. Oh, I didn't know that. Oh, this is also when he starts, it's World War II. And he gets approached to build a, uh, a troop transport plane, and he decides that he's going to go even further, and he's going to make it not just a troop transport. They're going to be able to transport tanks in it. It's going to be a full. It's going to be the largest plane ever built, and that in order to make it fly, they're going to have to make it out of wood. This famously will end up being called the Spruce Goose, but Hughes actually preferred to call it the Hercules. And this is also when he's being targeted. He starts to be sort of Juan Trip and Pan Am sort of have him in their sights because they know that TWA, Hughes' company, could potentially start international, cross-the-world flights, and that would be a, a, a competitor to them. Sorry, I keep getting lost because the plot's kind of like... All over the multiple... place? Yeah. Well, it's there's multiple things going on. There's, like, the romantic plot line, and there's the planes, and it's like, so you, and there's, like, the mental illness, and they're, like, they kind of are, like, intersecting, and then, like, They'll go off in different directions. I'm just trying to keep it. Mike, Mike, can you agree with me that the movie's a narrative mess? 
No, I love the way that this flows. I think this is a, one of the, the most rewatchable films I've ever uh, seen. Okay. I love the rewatchable. Way that it goes that's that's due to next... rewatchable is due to the director. Okay, the director's interpretation of the script as it's written. If we were seeing this on screen done by any other director other than Scorsese, and leave Oliver Stone out of it, out of it as well. If this was Michael Mann doing this script, do you really think you would want to watch it as much as you do? Because I honestly, I, mean... I honestly think that this movie, with how it's so fucking scattershot, is unwatchable. In my eyes, I can't watch it go from this to this to this, not learning a thing in this quote unquote biopic. What do you think that the approach or the structure or whatever is like losing for you? Like, what do you think you're not getting out? I'm not getting anything out of it. That's my problem. Like, I'm not learning anything about the guy. I'm not learning how he became. When it comes to biopics, you know, I always say what I want to say about Will Smith. But what I'll say about Ali is I at least it had a starting and ending point to it. This movie goes from one narrative scene to another. And again, I'm not learning anything. I'm not learning how he gets to where he is. I'm not learning how he comes to the conclusion that he wants to get this airplane built. I'm not learning how he gets his money. I'm not learning any of this. So I have no way of interpreting what the fuck I want to feel about this guy. Except that they're doing it wrong. Because we know what kind of a guy he is. And they're not wanting to portray that. They're wanting to portray him as this victim who rose above. That's my problem. I don't know. I guess I just come at this different because I, I, like I said, I think that he, who he is is established. I mean, I've said this already, but like, I just think it's Jesus, who he is is established sort of from the beginning. And then we just see what happens when he's put into different contexts. And, and I think that there's things in the film that are kind of like, you don't realize that they're going to pay off and then an hour later they pay off. And I think that that's, that, I think this is a very well-written screenplay in terms of that, in terms of the way that it compresses 20 years of history into, and it was what I think is a narrative that flows well together in the sense that, you know, I talked about clocking this time, watching it, clocking the sort of 27 minute increments. Of course, the first time I saw this movie, I didn't have any conception of that. And it flowed so well for me and that I got to the end of it. And I was surprised at how long it was. Like I got to the end of it. I was like, how long was that movie? That's two hours, 15 minutes. I didn't realize because it just flowed. So and a lot of that is the editing. But of course, I can't, I, I don't know how it would have played out if someone else had directed it. I mean, that's, that's sort of a what if that's sort of unanswerable. Alan Alda. Okay, let's get to that, right? So Alan Alda's in this film, right? Now, was that uh, Alan Alda the, or the Oracle? Because when Hughes goes in that room, like, it's all green. I thought I was in the Matrix. You know, that is a terrific observation. <laughs> God, if Alan Alda had been in the Matrix, that would have been <laughs> Neo could be like, so, oh, excuse me, um, I'm not going to do a impression. Excuse me, you look a bit like that uh, guy from MASH. Um, and this is where we start to get the idea of this community airline bill that's being written up by Pan Am or being written up supposedly by the Senate, but is actually being directed by Pan Am's lobbyists and cronies. And, and the opposition to Hughes begins to be formed by uh, Alan Alda in a Oscar-nominated performance, which I think is weird. Not that he's bad in it or anything, but I, it's so odd to me that he, I don't know how that, he, it's not a very showy performance. If I didn't know anything about it and you just asked me who got a supporting actor nomination for this movie, I would probably have guessed Baldwin and Riley before I guessed Alda. But anyways. That's... You know why they picked him? Because he's old. Supporting actor tends to go to veteran actors who are either about to retire or close to the grave for a lot of points. Thankfully, he's still with hey, us. I was going to say, 18 years later, still kicking. Yeah, he's still kicking, but that that was like the, the veteran nomination, and I don't think he had ever been nominated before, and this was their chance to do so. I guess that makes sense. You know who he should have gotten nominated for was Crimes and Misdemeanors, but I guess that's that's another story. And this is also when uh, 
things between Howard and Catherine start really breaking down, and she is kind of tired of his selfishness and his vanity and him being spotted in all the gossip mags and the tabloids, and she meets Spencer Tracy, which, of course, ends up being one of the great kind of Hollywood love stories, but she meets him on the set of one of their films, and she decides to end things with cues, and that ends up being, I think, a, a real turning point for his character, and you have this very expressionistically kind of film scene where he basically has kind of a, a meltdown because of the, the sort of the emotional trauma of this relationship ending due to his own stubbornness causes him to, like, have this full kind of freak out where he takes all of his clothes that he'd worn during his relationship with her and takes them out to his yard and lights a fucking bonfire of them and makes that call to Noah Dietrich and makes and starts like, oh, buy, you gotta buy the suits. Make sure you go to Penny's. No, Sears. No, no, Penny's. Uh, I just forgot the word. Okay. All right, Garrett, he does a much better Leo is Howard Hughes than I do, so I want that on the record. Because <laughs> that, that was pretty good. But going to the whole government subplot, this is where I side with Garrett. I feel like this is the one subplot where the movie goes out of its way to make him the hero because they make the, these, I know part of it's based on reality, but the way Baldwin comes off is so slimy, like when they have the, the scenes where he's in front of him in the door when he's all recluded, and, and the way these Senate hearings are framed, it's almost like the Godfather 2 where they're inquisiting Michael Corleone. I think this is the one portion where they try to make him too heroic. Maybe, but I, I, I can see what you're saying. I have read up on the, the real Senator Brewster, and that, that guy was... Probably even more of a piece of shit than Howard Hughes was. He was, like, elected with the support of the Ku Klux Klan and was personal allies of McCarthy and, like, was just a real... But anyways, that's that's a, a, a whole other tangent. And those are the things they don't even get into in the movie. It's almost going easy on Brewster. But you're right. It's almost more like he doesn't do anything that's... I guess he's just kind of menacing. It's almost more just the way that he's, like, played more than written, almost. Do you know what I'm saying? In, like, how oh, yeah. he's shot, the angles of it, more than... He doesn't kick a puppy at any point. Or like, do you know what I'm saying? Or like how in uh, uh, Black Panther, this is such a weird comparison, but like how in Black Panther, in order to make um, Michael B. Jordan's character more unsympathetic, they have him like hit a woman at one point. Yeah, like, he chokes a woman. Yeah. Like, oh, you're, you're empathizing with him too much? Right. They don't have Trip do anything like that. It's more just kind of like he's shot with these weird menacing angles, and Alec Baldwin is doing like full kind of villain voice. It's very kind of old. I, the words I keep going back to are old Hollywood because I think that that is a lot of the approach that Scorsese is taking. And he he has dropped three-strip Technicolor imitation as the film has moved into the 40s because that's no longer the sort of visual aesthetic of the time. We're clearly supposed to root for Hughes over Pan Am and over uh, the senator in this one. I don't know. I guess I just don't have a problem with that as far as a, as a, as a narrative goes. It's You know, it's weird. I, I watch a lot of films. I'm a history buff, and I watch a lot of films that are based on real events, and sometimes I do have similar kind of objections to, not inaccuracy exactly, but I guess when I think of film is dishonest in the sense of, okay, so like here's an example like of a film I saw recently, which is The Eyes of Tammy Faye. Have you guys seen that? Not yet. I plan to. Well, I didn't like it very much. Um, I didn't hate it or anything. Me neither. One thing that I was just kind of like, I was like, but what are you trying to say here, was in that film they present Tammy Faye Baker so sympathetically, and yet her husband in the film, Jim Baker, is so just kind of transparently just a complete scumbag that it made me go like, well, how is she so such an innocent and he is such a scumbag? Like, why is she how how could she be married to him and not know all this stuff? Or she's a complete 
prisoner, which is not entirely how the film portrays it either. And I was like, this is kind of dishonest. So that I, I can relate to that as like a, in general, as like a criticism. I guess I just don't see that in this case because I think that it's for one thing it's so stylized and for another thing it's so, despite the fact that it takes place over 20 years, is in many, and it's long. I think in many ways this is a film that's kind of hyper-focused in the sense that it's so much about Hughes, this very particular push-pull of like Hughes's strengths and his weaknesses and how they keep their constant kind of battle with each other. And at this point, this is kind of the turning point of the movie. This is where his, first his mental illness and then his, his physical strength start to break down. This is where he has his moment where they're in the, the aircraft hangar with some of his engineers and he starts kind of becoming paranoid about not just contamination, but the possibility that there are spies around him. It's shot in this very expressionistic way where he looks around and we essentially start to see things through his eyes in the, in the sense that we see this guy. He's just the janitor. That's all he is. He's there and he's just swooping up and he's a completely normal old dude. But we see it through his eyes and so we see that just it's shot in this way where he, just his presence seems menacing to Hughes because Hughes is starting to be totally overcome by his anxieties. And this is where we get for the, actually this is the second point in the movie, but it's the first point where it becomes really obvious when he starts doing the thing of repeating a phrase or, or a series of words. I, and this is something that I, from what I understand, is common with cases of severe obsessive compulsive disorder. Although I, I don't understand the exact reasoning of it or whatever, but this is a, a real sign of his illness taking over. And he has this sort of moment where he doesn't exactly flash back to his childhood, but it ties back into that first scene because he starts doing the thing where he spells out quarantine to himself in order to kind of write his own headspace. And this is, I think, you know, I think that he's, he's in many ways the same. You, you talked about like not understanding in the film, what the film is trying to say about why he does the things he does. And I think that this is the one moment right up until the end of the movie. This is sort of the one moment when you get that kind of callback to his childhood and you get just that hint of what was going on in his childhood without telling you the full kind of story. Because I think that sort of the origin story aspect of it is not so much, Scorsese's interest and, and, and the screenwriter's interest in it as, as sort of seeing how it plays out when he is in the building, when he is fully formed. It's Leonardo DiCaprio. It's it. We've talked this whole movie. He's in every fucking scene of the movie. This movie's about him, and yet we have not actually discussed his performance. Now, I don't know if that's a good sign or a bad sign, or if it's just kind of irrelevant that we just haven't talked about it. What do we think? Do we think he's good in this movie? Do we think he's bad in this movie? Do we think he's somewhere in between? What do we think of his strengths and his weaknesses are? I think he's great. I have no ill words to spew at DiCaprio as far as his work in this movie. I think it's the highlight of his career, if you ask me. Oh, um, wow. That's that's strong. Certainly up to this point. Maybe the best work he had done. Growing Pains. Yes, as the guy who compared this movie to Leaving in the Water. <laughs> and I still haven't seen Gilbert Grape, by the way. You know, I think he's fine. My problem has more to do with the writing and not necessarily what DiCaprio's bringing to it. A big issue I have, though, is when we start getting into the whole, I'm shacked up in the hotel room. They give him the Hollywood beard. You know what I'm saying? Like, the, like they're, they're trying to make him scruffy, but I don't get that this really shiny, very good-looking Hollywood star is decrepit like the way they're interpreting on the screen here and, I, and i've seen actors like tom hanks and these kinds of people do that kind of thing and dicaprio doesn't have that in him at least not until this point i do think he wanted really 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 bad to get that oscar this year and i think he worked really really hard to do that and i think it does show i think he studied a lot of film on the guy i think he studied a lot of biographies on him i think he has some of the interpretations down fine i definitely think he's better than blanchett in this movie but i just don't think the material is up to what he's willing to bring to it. As much as I love this movie, I would not 
say that this is a top tier DiCaprio performance. And I interesting. I the way yeah, oh, I think about you know I was trying I was watching it today and I was trying to figure I was watching it uh, the other day and I was trying to think what what like I'm like what is what is it exactly because I would not if you ask me like, what are my favorite DiCaprio performances I would not say this is one of them but if you ask me what what are my favorite DiCaprio movies this would be what's the contradiction there like, but I just think that there's something that's kind of I have no real complaints really um, I think that he does play the character with a lot of his own personal charisma and I think that it's a very coherent and 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 followed through performance I just think that in terms of what you're looking for in this kind of film there's maybe like a transcendent quality that it doesn't have in the sense that right now I've been doing like my list of like what are the best performances of 2021 and what I always think of when I ask that question is like what are the performances where I think no one else could have played this part or this actor is bringing something so specific to this that no one else would have brought like for this year or past years Nicolas Cage and Pig or I was like no one else could have played this role in this way and that's a more obvious kind of version of that but i don't know exactly what dicaprio is bringing to this that another very strong actor couldn't have also brought and that's not again that's not even a demerit necessarily it's just there's just kind of a lack of true inspiration or transcendence that i think could have gone even further and i love this movie so you know it doesn't it's not something that sinks the movie by any means but it's just, I was trying to figure out today, or the other day while I was watching the film. You're right that, I've always wondered with the DiCaprio Oscar thing, like, he definitely wants an Oscar. Or he has one now, but he like he definitely wanted an Oscar for more than 20 years. But I always wonder, like, that that, like, motivated his... Choices? Yeah, and I don't, I don't have an answer on that, because... I think sometimes people are like, oh, he definitely, like, he, he's doing these movies because he wants an Oscar or whatever like that. But he still kind of keeps doing those movies, even though he already has one. So, I'm, I, it's like, I, you know, I don't, I don't, it might just be those are the kind of movies he likes. He seems like a very, not self, well, yeah, maybe a little self-serious kind of person. Part of this is actually kind of one of the reasons I sort of like him as an actor. I think I sort of went into this the first episode. Like, he doesn't go on fucking Jimmy Fallon and, like, do bits and shit like that. He seems to take himself very seriously as an actor. And I think sometimes there are performances where you go, uh, Take it back a little bit, buddy. Like, the, again, like, this is, J. Edgar is the bad version of almost okay. every, yeah. yeah, bad version of this, bad version of DiCaprio, like, bad version of Eastwood. You see where a lot of people's tricks fall apart with that movie. I think he's good in this movie. I think the fact that he got an Oscar nomination is fitting. I'm sort of glad, well, he is worse than The Revenant, or, like, The Revenant's just a, a much worse movie, so I don't. He's also don't, not, like, that's entirely based on all the shit he did in the movie. Not yeah, his, he, yeah, yeah, exactly. And this is also the point in the movie where shortly after he has this sort of mental breakdown, there's the, I think, bravura sequence of the plane crash where Hughes tries to take well, one of his new planes out for a spin. It's XF-11, and it starts to, as he's trying to land it after this moment in the air, he starts losing altitude and the plane starts, you know, fucking up. And this sequence is so, I remember the first time I saw this movie, the way that Scorsese films this moment of him flying with this XF-11 in the air was like the other plane scenes in the movie, so playful and enjoyable that the last thing in my mind as I was watching the scene the first time was that anything could go wrong because he just, at this point, had only had triumphs. And then when things start to go wrong, I'm like, oh, he's going to, he'll, he'll, it'll be a crash landing, but it'll be impressive. And then instead he has this extremely uh, uncomfortable 
sequence that I also think is just technically so impressive. As I was watching this time, I thought, this is like the best Michael Bay sequence shot by someone other than Michael Bay. I really had that thought. I was like, this is kind of like a Michael, like the way that it's, they're filmed like from that low angle shot as the plane is passing over them. That's such a Bay type shot. Yes. Uh, but instead of just being, yeah. yeah. And it's this scene where, what do you guys think of this thing? To me, this this is like one of the key moments in the movie, and I think this is just an absolute brilliant bit of directing by Scorsese, and the show he really showing what happens when you give him this kind of big budget to do something really big like this. This is what he's able to accomplish. It's so uh, tense and thrilling and, and, and even scary. Ah, uh, I wasn't too impressed by this scene. I thought the special effects weren't really up to par. It felt a little too CGI for me. I hated when it went on the house. You're seeing the bricks move with the plane as it was going across it. I thought Michael Bay could have done this scene much better, honestly. I was not impressed by the scene at all. Okay, you're trolling me now, No, right? no, I'm serious. Because honestly, insane. I got to be honest. I, I knew of this crash. I remembered it from the last time. I, I remembered it happening since the last time I watched it. And I know that this was a very literal life-changing event in his life. And let's be honest, he should have died from this crash. I mean, he's, oh, yeah. he's burned over 30, 75% of his body. His chest went from one side to the other. I mean, he was fucked after this crash and he should have died. I wish I could have gotten more out of what that did to him because I see him move around in the cockpit. I see him jerk around a little bit, but I don't really feel any of it because I'm seeing a bunch of CGI images go across and I didn't like it. That's the most harrowing sequence in the movie. <laughs> but you're right. He should have died, but that's not Scorsese's. No, 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 no. I'm not saying it is. What I'm saying is I should have felt that. Uh, I will say that the first time I saw this, I was watching with my brother, and my brother was like, couldn't, he was like, that couldn't have happened. He would have been dead, and it did happen, like, and it did, that wasn't what happened. So and another thing that happened, yeah, and another thing that happened that, of course, Scorsese omits, is the one time you could actually be on his side for real. After this happens, and this, I guess he's an Air Force pilot? Pulled him out. Howard Hughes actually gave him money for the rest of his life after this. I think he paid him something like $200 a week, which back then was a lot of money after this for saving his life. Oh, I actually didn't know that. Yeah. And I, I, I've read about a bit about Hughes, but I didn't know that. There's also the moment where um, you get the title line. I always love a good titular. I always love a good titular line drop. You know what I mean? And also one other touch that I love here is I love how red the blood comes from uh, Hughes and, and and splatters on the, the like, like 50s hammer blood. Yeah. Oh, great pull. That's exactly. And the way it splatters on the on the glass of the cockpit. So you got your classic low point, although actually the real low point comes a little bit later. But we see Hughes start to try and recover from his accident. Also, this is around the time that he is trying to move on from Hepburn and he's dating Ava Gardner, who's, as we mentioned earlier, is played by Kate Beckinsale. And again, like not to harp on it too much, she really does not make an impact, almost at all. I couldn't really tell you it's the Cameron Diaz effect where even though she's playing a historical figure, she still feels contemporary. Yeah, that's yeah, that's definitely part of it. And also, I, I don't know, I just feel like maybe they, they could have made she looks, bolder choices. With she looks more old-timey than Cameron Diaz did, though. And she does have a classic look, at least in, in my eyes. Here's the thing with her character, too, that, again, just made me really just hate this movie is this character and Howard Hughes had a really acrimonious relationship shall we say there's a lot of abuse going on in this thing and the one scene where we do get to see it they kind of slap each other a bit and then the shot that Scorsese ends that on is so telling to me because Hughes he did abuse her in this relationship you know he threw ashtrays at her he did a whole bunch of things to this woman but what he ends this scene on is her standing over him 
in a dominant pose. Him cowering in fear pretty much. And that is, I'm just like, are you fucking kidding me with this? You're going this fucking far with this piece of shit human being. And again, it's just trying so hard to make us like somebody that is very unlikable in real life. I guess I see what you're saying. I mean, this is also, he gets into some, he, this is when he, as a character, not this particular, not that specific scene, but like, this is around the time in the movie when he starts behaving a lot more kind of autocratically. Like, yeah. he's, he, this is when he's like, there's the scene where he blackmails the tabloid publisher, and although that's also, he's doing, he's doing it in a way that is kind of sympathetic, although he's not really, he doesn't really come off in a, a good light, but when he blackmails the Willem Dafoe as the tabloid publisher, and he's also, dating a 15-year-old and, like, it's just kind of vertigo. Yeah, really and, like, weird. creating the perfect... That was another scene that came weird. out of nowhere when the 15-year-old all of a sudden attacks his car. Well, it's sort of like, I mean, it's just about... He's losing control of his life and he's obsessed with control in his craft of the planes and in the making of the movies and he also wants it in his private life, which, of course, he can't have because human you can't control human beings and he can't even control his, himself because of his illness and so he starts to try and make his own girlfriend so create her like a sort of frankenstein monster he's trying to control sort of the people around him and he's firing people more sort of willy-nilly and this is where he starts becoming more and all these traits are present i think it's from basically the beginning of the movie, but they're just becoming more kind of heightened. And he goes to meet with Senator Brewster, played by Alan Alda, who is introducing this community airline bill, which will give all of America's overseas international flights to one airline, which would be Pan Am in this case. And it's sort of a attempt to first coerce and then sort of intimidate Hughes, basically by saying that his Senate committee is capable of investigating Hughes and have investigated him and turn up a lot of dirt. But, of course, he can make it all go away if Hughes just plays ball and supports the community airline bill and maybe even sells his airline to Pan Am. And if not, you know, the stick rather than the, what's the opposite of the stick? Carrot, yes. And you also have the part where he sort of tries to intimidate him by putting the thumbprint on the glass and everything like that. And one thing that I, I think that Scorsese does really well in this film is showing things looking really disgusting, even though they're not disgusting. Or in the sense that, like, just, like, the thumbprint on the glass or, like, the fish that he's eating or various other moments in the film when he makes you feel the disgust of the either the germs or just the perception of the germs. Uh, I, I read an interview where he talks about a, a scene kind of went over, we, we didn't go over earlier, where he's in the bathroom and there's the towels and the, the other guy's asking, who's on crutches, is asking him to hand him a towel. And the way that Scorsese describes shooting the scenes, he says the towels are looking at him. I always thought that was a great description of how within the film objects seem to have their own livelihood and that, that that makes them kind of predatory. In some ways, this is a horror film. Some ways, oh God, I hate when people make those kind of comments, but it's true. So because Hughes is refusing to play ball with the community airlines bill, uh, he starts being investigated by the FBI, which is ironic given... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> J. Edgar, yeah. Yes, exactly. <laughs> and they're coming into his home and they're taking some of the files. They're looking into the Hercules, which is the troop transport plane that he was building that he never actually delivered and now the war is, is over and he still hasn't delivered it to the U.S. government, so he's being investigated as a potential war profiteer. So this is where he starts to get into his real sort of act, I don't know, act five low point. This movie has a lot of act. He has a complete Nervous breakdown. He sequesters himself away into his private screening room. And like me at the beginning of the pandemic, is just refuses to go out. He is a complete hermit. He's throwing out his beard. This sort of 
I think what she called a Hollywood beard or a stage beard. Yeah, what she called it. yeah, it was a Hollywood beard. Yeah, he's getting this Hollywood beard, and this is when he's really going full on the classic Howard Hughes that we all think we we sort of know of the crazy guy pissing in mason jars and. There's a shot of, like, 12 mason jars in a row just filled with urine. And he's eating junk food and candy bars. And, like, I don't, I don't know where he's shitting, but he's clearly shitting somewhere. And it's, it's all very disgusting. The way that it's done with the editing in this very disjointed kind of way where you lose track the time and the way that he keeps asking for the films to be shown over and over and they're being projected onto his actual body. So it's, it's the, the battle sequences, the air battles from Hell's Angels and the planes are shooting at each other. And so it's the battles that went on his film are now being reflected in his actual body. The battle's going on inside him, and it's also notable that he has all these scars from his crash earlier that are not visible when he's wearing his suits because they're, they're just on his actual flesh, but they're only visible when he's in the smoke. He's, he's back to being naked. He's, he's also sort of childlike again in that sense. He's kind of reverted to sort of an infantile sort of state. And this is something that really happened to him. He did have this full-on kind of... It did not happen until several years after this moment in the film. Now, this is one of those sort of historical moments of historical license that I think is totally fine, because I think it's just taking an extremely dramatic moment that did typify his life, and then just moving it to another point in the film for the dramatic kind of stakes of it. I think that's exactly what Hollywood films do all the time, and I perfectly don't and to make up for the fact um, that DiCaprio doesn't look nearly as old as what Hughes was when he died. Oh yeah. So you, you like that? You like that? that? You like the fact that they took that artistic license, huh? That they made it portrayed on screen. Because let's be honest, even if you don't know Howard Hughes, the Aviator, Howard Hughes, the filmmaker, Howard Hughes, the producer, this is very, very well-known stuff. That this is how he yeah. he went. You like the artistic license they took by making DiCaprio do it this way? Yeah, because I think that the thing about the film is that it's trying to show the period of his life when he was somebody who conquered the world, essentially. When he was somebody who seemingly could do anything. When he was somebody who, as Orson Welles put it, lived a life that was so over-the-top that you would not believe it if it was in a movie. It's showing that period of his life, but we all know about what is to come, and the fact is that this was something that was inside him the whole time. So I think it's actually necessary that the film really shows that, even if it's not quite the order that it was happened in reality, it typified his life. It was something that was a reflection of who he was, and you have to have that kind of moment also because of the way that the film ends calling forward to what he's going to become. You need to have that little taste of it earlier on. You have to actually see where it's going to go, even if it's kind of out of the chronological order. Yeah, this is the right way to artificially fabricate history in a way that benefits the movie as opposed to, I don't know, I think the worst example, the one that made me the maddest, was in Bohemian Rhapsody when they show Freddie Mercury disclosing that he had AIDS well before he actually did it in the pub- in public eye. Yeah, and, and implying that he was HIV positive when he was yeah. at, the, at the concert, the, the Live Aid, which is like kind of, uh, anyway, so so you can't get off on that. Yeah, which is, yeah. And so this is also the moment where some of the figures from his life are coming to either try and sort of get him out of his funk in the case of, of uh, Hepburn. And she comes and tries to encourage him to go out and go flying with her. And I, this is, this is I think, the best moment in Blanchett's performance because it's also, it's sort of the most quiet. Earlier on in the film, Hughes says to quit acting or quit performing, one of the, one of the two. And the idea being that she's constantly, even when she's not you know on 
screen or on stage. She's still doing this performance of a larger-than-life person. Hepburn is not Blanchett. There is no version of the story where Howard Hughes and Captain Hepburn go and fly off into the sunset and live happily ever after. That's just not uh, it's not going to happen. <laughs> yes. <laughs> this is also where he's visited by Juan uh, Tripp as well, and Baldwin is very menacing. And it's sort of unreal, these scenes where he's talking to these people from his life who are outside he, he's because he's really not talking to them i'm not saying that it's not literally what's happening the person he's really talking to is his own kind of demons either his positive you know, his better angels or his demons and that's why they're not together they're being they're you know they're separated by this door and, and everything like that. And there's something almost stage like about it that i think is really nice and also just a little fun fact sometimes scorsese will do cameos in his films and he is in this film and recently he's done it almost exclusively as vocal cameos, I think because he knows that he's too recognizable now that it would be distracting. He's the voice of the uh, projectionist. Even though Um, he's not enough to reach the projector. (laughs) He's not. And so this is, but uh, Hughes manages to actually leave the screening room and he starts to sort of piece his life back together, make himself sort of presentable shave his beard off, clean up his home in Beverly Hills or wherever he is, and start to get ready to appear before the Senate committee that has called him to testify. And obviously this is something that's very grueling to him because he does not like uh, crowds and does not like being out in the public. And here he's going to be in front of really the entire world having to defend what he's done. And it turns into this mano a mano between Alan, Senator Alan Alda and Hughes over the question of basically what it turns down to is Hughes making the Hercules about basically how he was going to. Government is accuser, the senator is investigating him as the possibility of him being a war profiteer for taking government funds for a plane that they would accuse him of never intending to actually finish, whereas Hughes makes a point of talking about how he was funding the Hercules, the Spruce Goose, with his own money as much, if not more, I don't know know the exact numbers, but he was funding, putting his own money into the Hercules, kind of making the point basically that he cared about advancing aviation. That's how he would put it, at least. He cared about advancing aviation more than making money. He was willing to risk his entire, you know, sort of fortune on making this thing a reality, making this sort of dream of his a reality. If it wasn't able to actually fly, he would probably leave the country and never come back, uh, which is a real quote that he said. And actually, I think it's, <laughs> it's a weird... It's a weird Very thing. weird. Very strange. He was a bit of an odd guy, I guess. Basically, to sum it up, he sort of gets the upper hand on Alda in the subcommittee, accuses him of being Aaron Boy for one trip in Pan Am and makes a fool out of him and sort of on, I guess it's not television because it's the 40s, but, you know, in, in front of the press and everything like that and basically discredits the investigation of him and then and sort of leaves the committee in to, uh, to some applause, actually. He's managed to turn the public to his side. Interesting transition here. I mean, we're, we're looking at three different phases of his life. One of them, apparently, is fighting the government. I don't know. Matt, what do you think of how this all came together? I think this, like, 30 minutes from the seclusion on, it's basically, it becomes the dramatic equivalent of a Rocky montage, where it's about all about getting his shit together. Oh, yeah. <laughs> this is the portion of the movie that I kind of wish was more interesting than it actually <laughs> than it's actually presenting itself as. Yeah, I don't know. I, I guess I did, I've never really had a, that issue with this part of the film. I was doing some reading recently about, after I saw the movie, uh, again, I was doing some reading about sort of the real hearings and everything like that. And it, it is interesting how many of the lines are directly from the actual transcripts and everything like that. 
Also, and then here's another little fun fact. Have you guys seen Tucker, the man in his dream? Yes. Uh, yeah. Love that movie. Yeah. I saw it last year for the first time. I loved it. My recommendation. You finally watched yeah, it. Yeah, I did. Of course, that movie has a cameo by who is it's Dean Stockwell, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, as Howard Hughes, making a, a very odd kind of appearance to sort of give uh, Tucker a kind of weird sort of it's almost like a pep talk. It's like straight. Yeah. But, um, the Lance Armstrong scene from Dodgeball, if it was unironic. Holy shit, that's a great pull. That is great. Yes, that's exactly what it is, and it involves this part about him being investigated. So I always think that. The tie-in between these two movies is kind of interesting. And one of the other senators on the committee who was investigating Hughes was the Lloyd Bridges character from Tucker. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's uncredited in that movie. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that's just, when there's someone who's a, some big actor in a fairly large part who's uncredited, I always think that's kind of like like Gary Oldman in Hannibal, another movie we covered. Right? He's, he's uncredited. Anyways. Yeah, well, um, and, for a bunch of other reasons. Yeah, well, yeah. And then this is basically the climax of the film where Hughes has basically said that if he can't get the Hercules to fly, he's going to leave the country and never come back. And on uh, November 2nd, 1947, which is 45 years before my birthday, so I guess it's interesting, they managed to make it fly, and it's Hughes and Odie, his, his top engineer, played by Matt Ross, the Canadian Barry Pepper, um, and, and Ian Holm, who somehow managed to say 75 years old for 20 years. <laughs> <laughs> it's one of those things where, like, nobody in the movie really ages, which is fine. I don't have an issue with that. It doesn't make a difference. In this particular movie, it doesn't make a difference. It's not a movie about the passage of time. It's not like The Irishman or something like that, where, like, the fact that the guy's aging is, like, a, a plot point. But it's just kind of funny, though. Like, there's this guy who's, like, a cartoon version of a little old man, and he's there at the beginning of the movie, and he's there at the end. He's still a little old man. They made, um, they made it seem very heroic. I, I don't think it flew 200 feet. I think it might have cleared a thing of water or something, and then it just went down. Like, it's not like it, it was as triumphant as they're making it out to be in this. Right, he didn't exactly go to the moon. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Right. Yeah, but he, he manages to get it to fly, and it's, you know, the score by Howard Shore, I think, is, and it's got these castanets on it. I read an interview with him where he said that he wanted castanets to be on the score because he thought that what's the cleanest place in the world, the desert, that it's the most singular kind of place. And so that's what Hughes's his soundtrack would be. It would be something that was clean like the desert, so he wanted castanets, which I think is like a weird roundabout. But anyway, they get the Hercules to fly, and it looks like it's a great sort of moment of uncompromised triumph. He's triumphed over his enemies in Congress. He's got his plane to fly. He's seemingly overcome Juan Tripp and Pan Am. And, oh, I can't forget to mention Alec Baldwin having the great one fuck in the movie, right? That's his last line. But anyways, he's seemingly triumphed. He's seemingly prospered. They're having this celebration party. He talks about how Hughes Aviation and TWA, they're going to be moving into the way of the future with jet planes and how they're going to keep moving forward and everything like that. So everything's great. Everything's hunky-dory. They're popping the champagne. He's looking every bit the kind of classic sort of man of industry, tycoon of industry. And then he starts to see some guys who he doesn't know who they are. He doesn't know why they're there. doesn't know why they're moving the way they're moving. It's unclear if they even are actually there or if he's, you know, just completely imagining things. But he starts having a full-on panic attack. He starts repeating the way of the future over and over and over again. He's clearly succumbing to those demons that have been there, even at his moment of greatest triumph, they're still there. And his top advisors managed to shuffle him off to a bathroom and get him hidden away from the press to make sure that the world doesn't know that he's completely losing it. And as he's there, completely alone in this dark room, the lights fade out, he seems to be completely isolated. He sees this vision of himself as a child, hears the child version of himself say that his dream is that he's going to be He's going to grow up, he's going to fly the fastest planes, and 
make the biggest movies and be the richest man in the entire world. And he looks at this version of himself in the mirror and it looks back at him. He fades back into the child version of himself, fades back into darkness, and he's there all alone. And he continues repeating the way of the future, the way of the future, the way of the future, as he stares at his reflection, unable to overcome the demons that have been with him literally the entire, since his childhood. Even in his moment of being able to accomplish everything that he set out to do, he did accomplish what he was able to set out to do. He still ultimately was the victim of his own flaws. Cut the Black, directed by Martin Scorsese. Play a little Glenn Miller. <laughs> uh, closing moments of this, it's like, obviously we're not going to see him die as Leonardo DiCaprio. He's too young to show that, but it's... I guess a harrowing ending, but I'm just once again just left like, okay, where do you go from here? It's really bizarre that they made this choice. It's also even really even weirder that there's no title card to say like Howard Hughes died 12 years later or whatever it actually was. Yeah, it's very strange and I would dare call it awkward. In a movie that's this long, I'm surprised there was no epilogue. By epilogue, you just mean like the title card? Yeah, like a title card. Here's what happened afterwards. Well, Scorsese usually doesn't like doing that. He has one in uh, well, Goodfellas. In Goodfellas, he has one, but he's done he's done a lot of movies that are based on true stories that don't happen. So, like Raging Bull, The Irishman. Pretty sure Wolf of Wall Street has something at the end. Uh, I guess we'll we'll find out in a few. We'll, weeks. we'll, we'll get there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I tried to comment only on Scorsese films that aren't, don't have DiCaprio at this point. So, I like the bleakness of the. I like how it leaves you in the darkness. Just like Hughes is left in the darkness. I mean, I think that's kind of the point of the ending is that we've seen everything that his life is going to be from here on out. It's just going to get worse in the sense that things are going to change in the degree. He's going to get more crazy. You know, he's going to get more of the version of him that we saw in the screening room. And it's just going to be that. That is the way of the future for him. You know what I mean? We've, we've seen everything that we're going to see because he's seen everything he's going to see. Just the rest of his life, the next 30 years of his life are just going to be an endlessly repeating cycle of this just escalating. This is why I think that the first scene does have to be there, although I want to disagree, but I think that that's sort of the point of having him, the child version at the beginning and then at the end. Is, it is really portraying... Howard Hughes as, at this period of his life, as being sort of the ultimate sort of boy's dream. I mean, really, you know, who doesn't sort of grow up wanting to be able to do anything you want, to fly anywhere you want, to be a big Hollywood celebrity and take the prettiest movie stars and to be rich and have all your enemies humiliated, ha, 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 you know? And it's just like, where does that lead you? It doesn't lead you anywhere except into complete darkness because the demons that drive you into that darkness or happen to be the things that were pushing you ahead to that quote success unquote it's all hollow that's, that's a great uh great interpretation of the film that's my review in a nutshell it's all hollow so yeah, let's get into our final thoughts on this one carrot on a scale of one to ten what do you give the aviator oh, oh boy look this did not go as i was hoping where i was going to look at it years later and think you know there was something about that movie that i miss i seriously wish i did i do wish i liked this movie i don't like this movie at all there's only one character i kind of liked watching that was alec baldwin and he's not in enough of this almost three hour film which was some of the hardest three hours i had to get through with this movie honestly i had to sit down twice 
to watch it because I fell asleep the first time. I can't argue with the craftsmanship behind a lot of it. One thing we didn't touch on, I, I guess I kind of did, was I, I hated how Scorsese focused on the flashbulbs as Hughes was getting out of cars and things. And I don't like the overemphasis of everything that Scorsese does in this movie. I think things of that I don't like about Scorsese are all come out in this movie. And I don't think that's his fault. I, I mean, I, let, let me go back to one of my favorite films of his, and I don't think it's a movie that we've mentioned yet, is a movie called Raging Bull. De Niro plays that character so well. That movie movie is tremendous because of how unsympathetic a character Lamato is. And Scorsese was uncompromising in that. He's like, you know what? This guy was an asshole. I'm going to portray him as an asshole. This isn't Rocky. This is Jake Lamata, And you're going to see him the way he was and not the way people are, are going to try to interpret him as. I wish he could have taken that approach with this character. I wish DiCaprio would have taken that approach with this movie. I think it would have been a much more interesting movie. As it is, it's glossed over. It's three hours of absolutely nothing. I learned absolutely nothing about this character I didn't know going in. And the things I, I do think that they do show, I, I just don't agree with. I just don't agree with a lot of the things that I'm seeing portrayed on screen here as being good. Kate Blanchett, I love her presence, but I just don't like her in this movie. This is a very low score for me. I, I'm going to Two out of ten for The Aviator, and that was mostly for Alec Baldwin. I can't stand this movie. Wow, i got to follow that. The word I would use to describe this approach is intriguing. Almost any individual that you put into a biopic would be improved if all the unpleasant parts were taken out. So I'm happy there's a great deal of emphasis on his own personal demons. But... I will say the thing that keeps me from giving this movie a higher score than I want to is I do have a certain amount of emotional dissonance from Hughes and from pretty much everybody because it is so involved in the time period and it's so involved in doing all these different things and showing all these different peaks and valleys of his life that it does feel a little unfocused. There are parts of this movie that I do love that I think I mentioned and there are some lulls like there's that whole portion that I've I, I've talked about when Garrett was not tearing this movie a new one. All in all, my fi- all in all the, I guess you should say. Jesus. Uh, the movie, it's the definition of Icarus, which is ironic because he's he's an aviator. Mercedes <sighs> trying to juggle a lot of different balls and I give him props for trying, but I, I to a certain extent, I think Michael Mann's vision would have been a little bit more focused and I think he might have delved into the darker stuff because even in Ali, they don't shy away from his infidelity or his, his draft dodging. They're not afraid to touch on the more controversial aspects of his life. And I, I think he could have done that here. It's a fascinating piece, and there, there's definitely a lot of merit to it, but I'm going to give it the same score I gave Gangs of New York. It's a, it's a 7 on 10 for me. Okay, on my part, for one thing, nobody tore this movie into one because this movie is made out of titanium, baby. <laughs> um... <laughs> This movie is great. I mean, come on, you guys. This movie is fantastic. This movie absolutely hums with a real sense of invention. It hums with a sense of just absolute playfulness. Uh, one of the things that Orson Welles said when he moved to Hollywood to begin work on Citizen Kane is he said that a movie studio was like the world's largest electric train set. And this movie is like that. This movie has all of that energy, that vibrancy, that complete spirit of just exploration and what you might call a lack of focus i think is just an absolute sense of that kind of screwball sense of discovery of things that you've never seen before and i think that when you look at the biopic of the famous person or the great man or whatever that's one of the most formulaic genres that there is and so those are usually very sleepy and like 
staid and dull movies. And this is a movie that absolutely vibrates with uh, life, and it is animated by Scorsese's fascination with not only the period, but with the very art of filmmaking itself. And I think that he is electrified by the subject matter here. And I think that it shows in terms that are honest with itself what was awe-inspiring, not necessarily sympathy, but what was awe-inspiring about what Hughes was able to accomplish and what also was so terrifying about what eventually did bring him down and how these things are just sides of the same point. This is not a perfect film. There are Scorsese, there's definitely Scorsese films I like better, but I think this is a really, really tremendously made and absolutely rewatchable and just as dark as the plot line sometimes get, a fun movie. And I'm going to give it a 9 out of 10. Wow. Some differences there. Yeah, I knew I knew it was going to be acrimonious. I really did. I thought Matt was going to be more on your side than he actually was. I thought that was interesting. But yeah, this was uh, one of the most acrimonious podcasts we've ever had. And I'm happy for that. You know, differences of opinion are what make the world go round. But I'll guarantee you this, I'm not going to have as strong thoughts next week. Okay, I will then. Wow. Uh-oh. Because we're getting to the movie that I have been most excited to talk about of the five. Oh, I'm I'm intrigued by where this is going. So next week is The Departed, and that is how you say it. For the record, everybody, especially me li- not living too far from Boston. This is a movie I have seen, no lie, about 50 times. No, oh, it's so, it's so, it's, you, if it's on Netflix, it's like a public health violation because it's like <laughs> people are not going to leave their apartments because they'll put it on and they'll be there for the next two hours. And then the next day it'll still be on Netflix and they'll put it on and they'll, you know what I'm saying? Like that's, it's dangerous, this movie. Anyway, sorry. And I've seen it that many times and I, and there's still so much to talk about. I feel like I won't be able to cover everything I want to say, but um, I know we should stop. Like I'm worried now that I'm going to start giving away like. Yeah, I'm not going to show my hand at all, but I, I have so much to say about The Departed. I can't wait. You know, I used to think that The Departed was near the bottom of Scorsese's filmography, and the more I watch it, the more impressed I am with it. I think it's a movie that really improves upon rewatches. It's really interesting some of the places that he goes with that movie because it's him doing like a mainstream. Well, relatively, it's kind of him seemingly doing a mainstream movie, but anyways, we'll, we'll, we'll get into that, right? Until next week, show me all the podcasts. Show me all the podcasts. You're not one for tears, and well, neither am I, so it's best to come out with it. Let's be honest, it's all been a grand adventure, but it couldn't possibly last. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Three Men in a Retrospective podcast, exclusively on Percolated Media. Well done. Join us next week for an entirely new review. Which would be worse? To live as a monster or to die as a good man? And if you would be so kind please take a moment to give us a positive review and rating on your podcast platform of choice. It truly helps others to find and discover these podcasts.
got this rat, this annoying, cheating fucking rat. The Three Men and a Retrospective podcast is produced by Garrett, Matt, Adam, and Nathan. Don't tell me I can't do it. Don't tell me it can't be done. Edited by Garrett. That's a sorry-looking pelt. Voiceovers by Adam. This is Howard Hughes. Howard and I were just discussing how he wants me to pull a camera out of my ass. Retrospective podcast is for review and discussion, and all clips, music, and audio cues are used as such. Hunt the flesh, kill the flesh, eat the flesh, that's the uh, male sex all over. way of the future the way of the future the way of the future the way of the future mm-hmm. he's still the same child that he was at the beginning of the movie that he is in the end but we'll get we'll get to that that actual scene there and so Matt, do you have anything to add to that? I'd rather just listen to you two duke it out, and uh, I'll, I'll jump in when <laughs> I feel it appropriate, because this is far more All fascinating right. than my insight. Okay. Mm-hmm. This year, we, we talked about Van Helsing. Yeah, came out that's right, year. that's right. Yeah, like she was having... do, you think, do you think Scorsese was invited to see Van Helsing? <laughs> do you think Scorsese has seen Van Helsing? And was there a camera running when he did? That's <laughs> the question. <laughs> I would Van Helsing is that. one of my most like time travel moments in the sense that like I saw that movie opening fucking night because uh, I was like 11 and it's like what else am I going to do? Uh, and I went to see Van Helsing and like you know how it begins with that like black and white. Yeah, the, the, the scene that is so good and it doesn't belong in that movie. <laughs> right, and the thing is. When I went to see it, it opened with that scene, and then before I think there, there was even a line said, um, the projector broke down. <laughs> and everyone was like, oh, no. And like for like a few minutes, they like had to fix it, and then they got it going again. And then the problem was we had to watch Van Helsing after. <laughs> no, but and it's she... like one of the classic time travel moments where I'm like, you could have just I, – I almost wanted to just tap on 11-year-old Michael Schultz and be like, get out of here, kid. This is your chance. Mm. Because Jude Law, he doesn't 
quite look like Errol Flynn, but I think he's got the mannerisms and the affectations. Whereas when Damian Lewis played Steve McQueen in whatever that last Tarantino movie was, where it's like, A, he looks nothing like him, and B, he doesn't sound like him, so why did you do this? Okay, but that was so weird because he does look like Steve McQueen, just not in the movie. That's what's so strange. Yeah, like, they gave him the right hairline, but... I don't know what happened. I don't know that was what weird. Because I, because I, when I when they announced that, I was like, oh, that's going to be great. And then I saw the movie, and I'm like, that was strange. And this was like, like a strange thing for. He looks deep fake. Yeah, it's very odd. But anyway, that's for another. That's for another series. Um, mm-hmm. And the fact that that's also what ends up about halfway through the film, almost killing him, is is I think of note. And uh, so, uh, what was I? Just one. Sorry. It's okay, I do it all. Oh, okay, I yeah. do it all the time. Now, here we go. <laughs> um, so this is also where we see... And speaking of, you know, Alec Baldwin, his career also would have been different. Two big what-ifs are, he was offered to come back as Jack Ryan in Patriot Games, and he also turned down The Fugitive. Oh, I didn't know that. Well, no, the thing about this is you're going to have to like cut this because it's like too long of a story. But the thing about Patriot Games, at least according to him, I remember reading it somewhere. I thought it was so fascinating. Is that they wanted Harrison Ford for the hunt for Red October, which makes sense. And Harrison Ford was like, I only want to play the, the, the submarine captain. And he's not a villain or anything, but he's like, you don't, wouldn't you rather play the American? We don't really think of you as a Russian. We might, we have much more of a Russian actor like Sean Connery in mind. And, uh, <laughs> Harrison, Harrison Ford was like, no, I just want to be the submarine captain. But I guess this is where K-19, the Widowmaker, comes from. But anyways, Harrison Ford Harrison Ford was like, he turned down Hunter in October, and then two years later they make Patriot Games, and they really want Harrison Ford. They're like, we, they're like, fuck Baldwin. And so they want to get Harrison Ford, and they knew that Alec Baldwin was wanting to do A Streetcar Named Desire on Broadway. They're like playing Stanley Kowalski was like his all-time greatest desire. That was like his, his biggest dream role. And that he was about to do that on Broadway. And they moved up production on Patriot Games specifically so that it would conflict with the Streetcar Named Desire. And they're like, well, you can either do your dream role or you can do Patriot Games. And so he chose to do Streetcar Named Desire instead. At least that's how Baldwin tells it. And, you know, maybe that's one version of the story. But I I just think that's a classic. And ironically, I think Harrison Ford is as much of an aviation enthusiast as Howard Hughes was. Yeah, except that Howard Hughes didn't like lighten up fat blunts before he went into the air. Yeah, but they both, sure what, they both crashed a lot of airplanes. Oh, they sure did. They sure did. Um, <laughs> anyway, don't get me started on Harrison Ford and airplanes because <laughs> I've got I got a lot of thoughts about that. Uh, where the fuck was I? Um, before I went off on Harrison Ford's love of fat blunts. <laughs> don't talk about Carrie Fisher that way. Oh, oh, this piece. Um, okay, where was I? Got it. Uh, oh, this is also when he starts. Mm-hmm. That's sort of a what if that's sort of unanswerable. But you know, you know what else is a, is a what if? Uh, is, uh, uh, uh shit, I lost where I was going with that. <laughs> that's the first thing. Uh, Alan Alda. Okay, let's get to that, right? Mm-hmm. So, Alan Alda's in this film, right? Now, was that uh, Alan Alda that, or the Oracle? Because when Hughes goes in that room, like, it's all green. I thought I was in the Matrix. You know, that is a terrific observation. 
God, if Alan Alda had been in the Matrix, <laughs> I would have been in the Matrix. <laughs> I want to see Sorry. Neo, though. So he'd be Agent Smith. Oh, that would be... A, that, <laughs> I do want to see that, actually. I don't know if you guys saw the new Matrix. No, um, not oh, yet. Oh, yes, I did. Trust me, we're, we're going to talk to about it, it sometime. But not yet, no. Well, I'll, 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 I'll leave, leave, let you guys keep that as a mystery, but I was thinking about how in that movie, like, some of the actors come back from the previous films, and other times the characters from the previous films get new iterations of them and they're played by different actors because they've been programmed in different ways. Like what if, yeah, I mean, yeah, what if the Oracle was just like, what is this time with Alan Alda? Just like, not even like Neo could be like, so, oh, excuse me. Um, I'm not going to do Keanu impressions. But excuse me. You look a bit like uh, that uh, guy from MASH. Um, and this is where we start to get the idea of, um, interesting thing that I read in the American ACE magazine. Um, Mike, you still with us? Uh, did he drop off? I don't. I think he did. Damn it! God, this review's gonna be as long as the goddamn. <laughs> I hope not. I gotta work eventually. I'll try not to get as argumentative. <laughs> Like I gave, I gave you some rope to agree with you. Just don't hang me with it. <laughs> I blame Pan. <laughs> I blame Pan. You guys hear me? Yep, there you are. Yeah. I don't know why that keeps happening. I okay. Don't know. Uh, hopefully, it doesn't happen next week. Uh, you uh, really be the departed on that phone call. Uh, all right. Um, so you were defending Matt's. Uh, Matt's actual agreeing with me. Go ahead. Um, I should say attack. What, what, what was I actually saying? Because I, I don't know what point There, there was no dog kicking in this movie. Yes. Oh, yeah, right. Mm-hmm. It plays out when he is an adult and when he is fully formed. Let me ask you, Mike, because we've kind of been circling it, and I'm, I'm shocked that we have because he's the main star of this movie. He's the. I, I was just about okay. to do that. All right. Yeah. Go ahead. I'm sorry. Leonardo DiCaprio. It's it. We've talked this whole movie. He's in every fucking scene of the movie. Mm-hmm. What do we think? Do we think he's good in this movie? Do we think he's bad in this movie? Do we think he's somewhere in between? What do we think his strengths and his weaknesses are? Matt? I'd like to hear from you. <laughs> Why do I have to go first? This is bullshit. That's <laughs> mm-hmm. like... The one he probably, like, they nominated him in Blood Diamond instead of The Departed, which we'll talk about. Oh, so strange. Yeah, the, the Oscars are always weird when it comes to, certainly DiCaprio. I mean, you had Django and Shane, the man bled for his craft. They kept the taken, and he still didn't get nominated. So Christoph Waltz doing the exact same performance he did in another movie four years earlier, just with a different hairstyle or whatever. But anyways, but... Um, <laughs> off on the Christoph Waltz tangent, uh, taking a little waltz. Mm-hmm. Because I see him move around in the cockpit, I see him jerk around a little bit, but I don't really feel any of it because I'm seeing a bunch of CGI images go across, and I didn't like it. To uh, this is Garrett. Um, I've been waiting seven plus years to play this, so I will humor me now. That's basically Garrett's last 
I didn't hear it. I'm sorry. I, <laughs> yeah, I can yeah, hear it. didn't come through. Whatever you. Uh, fine. Let me try again. You. <laughs> That's a rugged, stupid quote. By the way. Oh, I, oh, we couldn't. You I still couldn't can't hear, hear it. But go ahead. All right. Fuck. I, I played the Mr. Horse clip of No, sir. I don't like it from Reddit Stimpy. Okay. All right, so you're that's, so you're agreeing with. I think you understand that reference because you're somewhat older than me. No, I don't agree. I don't. I don't uh, know Ren Snippy at all. Uh, so you're saying you agree with I, Mike is what you're saying. I love a good moment when they they say the the title of the movie because I always think that by custom you should if they say the, the name of the movie in the movie everyone in the audience should be obligated to stand up and applaud oh, for about 10, for about 10 <laughs> seconds and then sit back down. That's just, I, I, I just, look, I, I, I'm old fashioned. You're losing me. I'm old fashioned. <laughs> when I saw, when I, when I was in high school and we watched spies like us in a class, oh, it's a real thing that happened. And Chevy Chase goes, so there's spies like us. We all stood up and clapped because that was what we did. God damn it. And that was what, those are our principles and our values, and we need to go back. But anyway, oh my god, did you go to school in a Mexican prison? Because that sounds like torture. <laughs> <laughs> that movie's not bad. That movie's not bad. Anyways, um, and he starts. God, hold on a second. I got this synopsis, but it's it's badly formatted, so I'm I keep getting like the movie. No, not like the movie. Okay. Screenplay is not a synopsis. Um. Uh, is this where he has his breakdown? Yes, okay. Um, and it's also, it was, it's been a couple days since I watched the movie, so it's the order of things. Not... Mm-hmm. Anyways, I, we'll, we'll, we'll get into that. All right, so go ahead and end it. All right. Um, wait a second, what, do we, do, do we have to get a line? Yeah, yeah. Okay, let me, let me. You didn't get a line? Damn it, Mike. <laughs> no, I thought you were going to, because you had one last time, and I just thought you were going to do oh, that again. Oh, no, no, um, no. I was just giving you a jumping point. Okay, hold on. I'll, I'll just be a second. Okay. Sorry. I mean, the obvious one would be the way of the podcast, but yeah. that's. Show me all the podcasts. <laughs> podcasts are the way of the future. There you go. Does it, so does it have to be podcast or podcast? You can do whatever you want with it, yeah. Um. So okay, so what do I have to say? I have to say until next week. Until until next week, and then and then something. Correct. Okay. Okay. Uh, <clears throat> <clears throat> <clears throat> right. Until next week. Show me all the podcasts. Show me all the podcasts. There we go. Show me all the podcasts. Perfect. Perfect. <laughs> perfect.